Okay. Here we go. In three, two, one. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Deep Dives into the Minds of Esports. My name is Blake Panishevitz, and I am pleased to introduce my next guest. He was a professional player who turned successful coach uh, previously playing for Blank Esports way back when, but then he joined the LA Valiant over the 2018 season. He then went on to join the Boston Uprising as an assistant coach. Please let me introduce Jordan Graham, maybe better known as Gunba. Welcome to the show. Thanks. How's it going? It is going good. I'm excited to have you on the show. Um, I think there's going to be a lot to talk about. We're going to get to talk about uh, your life, who you are. There's not a lot about about you as a person, uh, like who you are as an individual, which is kind of cool. And I, the stuff that I did find, I thought was kind of really fascinating. Um, and so I like to start it off uh, fairly easy with our with our questions before we get into like the they really deep dive into who you are as a person. So one of the cool yep. things that I found out is that you are actually a software engineer, um, specifically for the Western Australia uh, state government. Uh, what does one do as a software engineer for the government? Uh, so it was my first job. I was a graduate software engineer initially and got promoted um, sometime around Overwatch's release, which was unfortunate. So, well, fortunate, I, I guess you could say as well in some other ways. Less fortunate for them. Um, <laughs> I, I applied to a bunch of jobs. I got a job pretty quickly, I think, within a week. Um, but I actually interviewed at McDonald's the, the week before getting this job <laughs> at the state government, where okay. a guy who was interviewing me, it was also a software engineer, right? So he was a manager at this McDonald's. And he told me I'd never find a job. Like, that's the first thing he said to me. He's just like, wow. you're never going to find a job with that degree, you know, whatever, right? Um, but yeah, I stuck to it. And I put up a, a CV uh, mm -hmm. on my domain, gumba.org, which is, it's not there anymore. So there's nothing there. Don't go looking. Well, you can if you want, I guess. Um, and I found a job quickly with this, this contracting company that works with the state government, right? Um, and... I worked on one project the entire time, which was the, it's like a, the, so I live in Western Australia, which is a state in, in Australia. Um, mm -hmm. And like every state, we have a prison system, um, houses about 3000 prisoners uh, and they have software that manages all of the prisons. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say too much. It's literally confidential, but uh, they have software that manages the, the prisons around the state. Um, something like 18 prisons or something. I, I don't know what the number was when, when I was there. Um, and I worked on that software. So it's this big, you know, 15-year-old, whatever it is, 5 million lines of code uh, software project. And I would have worked with about 10 other engineers um, on just improving the software, supporting it, okay. adding features, dealing with issues, you know, because if something goes wrong, if a prisoner can't buy, you know, their food at the canteen or something because their balance is wrong or there's been a problem, um, then they start breaking things and hurting people. So I, I would be assigned to work on stuff that was, you know, sometimes urgent even, you know, like a prisoner would be, creating a big issue and things had to be solved that day and, and other times work on things that were more long-term, like adding functionality that, you know, they could use to keep track of prisoners and, and use to make things easier at the prison. Um, so specifically, I worked for the Department of Corrective Services okay. uh, through a company called Agilon. They're a really, really big company. Um, yeah, it's worked there every day for about a year. And then Overwatch came out. So I have to ask you, you said you worked with a, did you ever get the experience of going inside of a, a prison to see kind of what it was like from that aspect or were you pretty well kept out of it? Uh, I, was, I was kept out of it. I mean, we knew what was going on in all the prisons because yeah. the issues tied into what was actually happening in real life yeah. and all the data that we had on the prisoners was obviously real data. Um, many of my coworkers did. I was only there for, I think I, think I joined on just after they had gone to a prison. 
because they mm-hmm. obviously they do that sort of thing. That's a good question. Um, but I think I came in between the prison visits, if that makes sense, in terms of my yeah. my time there. Yeah, because I uh, when I was uh, like working in mental health, like after I graduated from college, I actually worked in a jail for a while, um, working with wow. uh, inmates yeah. there. Yeah, it's it is an experience, and like even to this day, like thinking about it, the the scariest part I think about it is they have magnetic locking doors, which I'm sure you dealt with code with this because I think a lot of it is probably coded to to some degree. But it is terrifying when those magnetic lock doors close on you, and you're like, oh my god, it would take them so long to actually get to me if these people want. <laughs> to kill me like you are screwed if someone wants to kill you in prison or jail you're probably dead like it is kind of terrifying i never really had that like violent offenders really that i had to deal with and there was only one time i actually got threatened to be killed but uh it, it's a it's a it, yeah, yeah i know bad. i know right only once i mean now, I, well, to be fair, I told the dude that he was a shitty father and that he wasn't taking care of his children so like i didn't have to interact with prisoners luckily uh, I interacted with the people that interacted with the yeah. people who ran the prisons, so it was a bit mm-hmm. more separated. Uh, my experience with prisoners was just reading their files, you know, like, yeah. and not even like intentionally. You would just be fixing something, and that would be related to the the prisoner, and you would have to go through and sort of sort out the data issue. So you'd have to open all their profiles and stuff. Yeah, yeah it was it was interesting every time I did get a chance to look. Mm-hmm. So you grew up in uh, Australia. Now, can you explain to people what Australia like? From what I, everyone who I've talked to, it's basically a lot of nothing, and then there's like a couple spots that there's actually something. Okay. Um, so I grew up in Western Australia. As I mentioned, I work for the Western <laughs> Australian government. Um, so Western Australia is obviously the western half of the country. I guess that's not obvious, but you know, the, the fact that it's half of the country is less obvious. Yeah. Um, so that the state itself is about the size of. Fifty percent of the continental United States, if that makes sense. Okay. It's yeah. about half of the U.S., not including Alaska, obviously. Yeah. Um, and my city is just in the corner, the bottom left corner, like on the on the coast. There's two million people that live there. Um, the city's probably like what a hundred kilometers across or something, right? It's it's mm-hmm. a, you know the metro area. Um, so imagine that's re- reasonably small city, right? Like it's probably like the equivalent yeah. of like Houston or something. Um, in, a, in an area that big, yeah. I mean, Australia is literally full of nothing. Like it's, and it's not something you're faced with daily. I, I think. I, I think that the scariest part about Australia is going overseas, and people are like, "Oh, isn't there spiders?" And it's, it's honestly, you get it every single time. Um, no, you don't grow up around spiders and snakes and, and wild animals. It's not not the case, right? You live in a metro area. It's quite suburban. It's a lot like LA in, in many ways. Um, but yeah, it's a stereotype, I, I guess. Yeah. Uh, how big of a joke is the emu wars? Because I used to know an Australian who used to talk about those all the time and joke about it. What's sad about it is I think it was a joke that Australians played on themselves, right? Like the idea that we <laughs> lost a war to emus. Um, and yeah, they, they tried to exterminate some emus and emus are, I, I guess, smarter than pe- they thought they were or something. I don't think they're very intelligent birds. But they tried to exterminate them and weren't able to do that or whatever the story is. Yeah. And now people use it against us overseas. Like they, they say, that, oh, you lost a war to emus. You know, it's like, well, Actually, that was our joke. <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing? Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah so, uh, so growing up, uh, what was growing up for you like? You do you have any brothers or sisters? No, only child, only single child. parent, only child. So isolated. Um, do you live with your mom or your I dad? I lived in like uh, my mom. Yeah. Okay. So I would have I would have lived in like twelve or something different houses by the time I was fourteen, fifteen. Oh wow. Um, I wouldn't say it was a bad. Yeah. You know, childhood it was it was fine. Like a there was no abuse, you know, I had food, we were poor, but it, it was okay, you know, I, I think people have had it worse. 
they definitely grew up really, really poor. Um, mm-hmm. Family's still poor. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm from a poor family. I think I can say that pretty safely. You know, things like field trips were definitely not in the budget. You know, like mm-hmm. a $30 field trip was, was too much yeah. money. That's 30 Australian, it's like 20 US. Um, but I, I think I had a fairly decent upbringing. I went to school, you know, everything was fine. I had friends, played in the neighborhood, you know, it's kind of the usual. Nothing, nothing too out of the ordinary, just the usual suburban childhood with yeah, so less money. Yeah. I actually want to ask you about growing up poor, because I know that had a pretty profound effect on me. Because I like, I like, I, I grew up in a very odd situation. My parents are divorced, and my my mom's side was actually very wealthy, like upper upper probably upper class wealthy. But then my dad, um, he ended up being like really poor, like so poor that I remember like uh, being there and getting like food from the church because we couldn't actually afford food at times because uh, he had a brain tumor, couldn't work for a while. Um, what effect mm. did that have on you if you like kind of look back and like how you, you view, view your philosophy today? Because I know it had a pretty profound effect on me. It's hard to measure without knowing what it's like to grow up in some yeah. other situation. You, you know, it's kind of normal to me. Uh, I, you know, similar situation. My dad's, I think, reasonably wealthy. You know, he was a CEO of a company and he did some fishing things in, in Eastern Australia. Um, but a reasonably successful person. He owned a boat. So, I, I, yeah, I think that's the criteria for being successful, right? Um, in terms of the effect it had on me, I think it just doesn't give you many options in life. Yeah. In, a, in a good way, in some ways. And obviously, there's downsides to not having money. Yeah, money's pretty good. Um, but I, I think. It gives you the perspective that you kind of have to achieve something. Like you, mm-hmm. you can't, I can't fail at something. You know, I, I'm not allowed to fail. If I fail, I'm in, I'm in real trouble. You know, I'm in financial yeah. trouble. I'm in, you know, in terms of my life, I'm in trouble. Um, so everything is done with the the mindset of what I'm doing has to be financially viable, and I have to be the best at it. You know, I have to be competitive, and I have to be better than other people. Um, mm-hmm. I think that factors in, especially to not getting the same you know, quality of education, the same quality of you know upbringing in general, right? Just like the kind of life experience that you yeah. might get if you have more money or, or you're more successful, your parents are more successful. Um, so I think it made me competitive. Mm-hmm. And I hear that story a lot. You know, you know, like I think that's common in esports that people grow up poor. Yeah. I think probably that also ties into the fact that poor people are more likely to play video games. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think that it's pretty common. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you ever look at like uh, like I see stuff now and like a lot of times like a good example is like people buying shoes I, I think that's like the big like I see some people who spend yeah. so much money on shoes and I see that and like I understand that oh they're financially stable and they can do it and it's the same thing as like if I were to go and I were to uh, spend money on like a meal or something like that it, that's what gives them pleasure but I still look at it and I'm like wow that is like $200 that could literally be used for anything else other than that. Do you ever notice yourself? I mean, yeah, okay, so <laughs> some people, my experience I, with I don't think I've like spent more than $60 on a shoe. So yeah, I spent like under a hundred. Usually that's like my number. Um, my, my experience with the shoes whole thing, I've seen this, especially in the Overwatch league. I, I think it's extremely common to go and spend yeah. like way more than $200. Like, you know, $2,000 is probably more accurate. Um, but I think it's especially common with Korean players. I don't know why that is. I think they're more of a fashion culture or something. But I've seen Jonax $2,000 shoes a few times now. I didn't, you know, I, that's insane. Every time I see them, it's still just absurd to me. Like, nothing against the guy, but, you know, I'm never going to spend $2,000 on shoes. I'm never going to spend you know, anything over 200 on shoes. Like, 200 that have to be pretty amazing shoes. Yeah. That'd be like hover shoes or some shit. You know, like, that'd be something seriously impressive. Um, my current pair of shoes is like 90 bucks. You, you know, I got them on special. So, yeah, I'm with you there. I, I think that there's definitely a fashion culture going around and. Yeah. I don't understand it, but if that's how they want to spend their money and, and they have the money to do so, then 
more power to them, I, I suppose. Do you think that that's maybe because uh, esports is? Do you, well, I guess this is a question in itself. Do you consider esports more of uh, almost like a sport or an entertainment industry? Because I almost view it as an entertainment industry. Uh, while there is competitiveness in it, it has more to do about the entertainment. And I guess sports is an entertainment, but um, I think that there's. I mean, it's both. You know, it's entertainment and sports. It's the yeah. same thing, right? Like at the end of the day the reason people get to do these things, play sports yeah. or play video games, is because it's entertaining in some way. Yeah. And they're not just entertained by the gameplay or the you know the play of the sport. They're also entertained by the people playing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if you're lucky, sometimes the coaches and the, the staff, less often, obviously. Uh, but I definitely think there's a lot of pressure on on specifically video gamers who you know transition into esports to make a name for themselves in ways outside of the game. And I yeah. think that the fashion culture is a part of that. I, I think that the fact that I know about Jurnex $2,000 shoes says a lot about it. I've noticed. I've, yeah. I've noticed, and people have talked to me about those shoes. You know, it's a successful marketing gimmick in its own way. I'm not sure, like, how much he's thinking it through. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, it's definitely the case that you see a lot of successful people in esports. Are there largely, not entirely, they always have to perform under some kind of situation, you know, as a coach or a player. Yeah. Uh, but they're there because they are popular. Uh, yeah, I think that's a really big part of it. I think that for that reason, a lot of these things make sense in, in that perspective. Mm-hmm. So you grew up uh, with your mom and you moved around right around, you said 12 different times. What was the reason for the moves? Was yeah, it just, that, yeah. yeah. The rent was too high. Uh, the school I was going to was too expensive. It was always like a different thing. Um, mm-hmm. Did you have to, do you have to pay for your schools? Um, you have the option to do that. So okay. no, I mean, there's like school fees and stuff that you need to pay. Like, okay. it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Australia is great. Yeah. Let's be honest. Like my, my, my upbringing wouldn't have happened in America at all. I would, I'd just be broke. I'd be a homeless person. Um, or my mother would be homeless either yeah. one. Um, but the school I went to, you know, my mother is someone who's really driven to provide like a good upbringing for me and, and put me in a situation to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a way that people in my family haven't. And I think that's a, that's a common story. Right. I think one of the first things she did was try and get me into a really expensive school. Right. When I was really, really young, like five or six. Yeah. Um, it's the kind of school you show up and there's people with BMWs everywhere, you know, it's like we're driving a shitty Hyundai, yeah. you know, just not, not supposed to be there. Um, but I think it's better not to have gone to a school like that in a, in a way, like, I think the mm-hmm. quality of education would definitely be better at a school like that, but I think that you can't relate to people from a different yeah. socioeconomic background as well as you, as you would people in your socioeconomic background. Um, you can't just jump tears in your financial status like that you, you, you know there's more than just the money to it right mm-hmm. there's the accent there's the way you speak there's how you behave you know there's like different different traditions and stuff like that so um ends up moving to a to a state school later on right which is i think most most australians would yeah. would have gone to a state school yeah okay so i have like a there's like a huge glaring question there why didn't your why wasn't your dad around and why didn't he help you if he was especially if he was wealthy and and did this what's mm. the story behind that uh, he paid child support. Like, just to be clear, he's not like, you know, absentee father type thing in, in the literal sense. Um, but he, I think he was a little bit older, maybe maybe ten years older than my mother, and he has two children that are already okay. they're about ten, fifteen years older than me. And I think mm-hmm. he just didn't want to do it again, and I respect that to some extent. You, you know, like I don't hold it against him or anyone else that would do that. I, I think that it's a, he made a big mistake at the end of the day. Like, he didn't want to have a child. Thought he did later did not um and he didn't want to go through the the 20 years of his life being taken up again right yeah. i think that when you've already done that 
Um, and you, you're in your fifties, or, or whatever. I think it would have been like forty something. Why would you want to do it again? You, you know, like I, I think that. I mean, I'm happy that he did it. I'm happy that he made that mistake. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm happy that he made that mistake too. I'm happy you're around. You're, uh, thank you. You're, you're an interesting individual, and I think that uh, you have a lot to offer the world. I'll say it that. Even though we're we'll in see. this, we're we're in this we're in this world of esports, I still think that like we have value towards people. Um, I think that <laughs> like, I I think I've said like I don't know if I've ever said this, but I think esports can offer like esports helps people, and maybe not in the same way that a doctor or. Um, like uh, a therapist would, right? But it does help people and a lot of people gravitate towards it and attach to it. And I think a lot of times that can be healthy because it gives them people who are like-minded. Um, and I think having like good people who have shown to be uh, persevered through life and to work hard in life, I think are really good role models for people like that, so. Sure, I think that a big tie in there as well is the fact that like you are talking about Australia. I, again, I do think that a lot of my upbringing and, and the opportunities I still have, I'm, I'm 27. Mm-hmm. Um, the opportunities that I still have because I'm Australian, I think that's really important to mention. Like, I could be a doctor, you know, I can still make that life choice, right? Yeah. Like, I can still do that. So, I guess being Australian really helped, I think, in my situation. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, maintain or do you follow like any like uh, American politics or anything like that now that you're kind of living in the States? I'm actually in Australia right now, but I do oh, tend you? to live nine months a year yeah. in LA. Yeah, this is my bedroom. <laughs> well, oh. um, yeah, I do. I do follow, vaguely follow politics. Not okay. so much because I'm interested, just because it's everywhere and it's entertaining. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, what, do you, what do you think about like the United States as a whole? Is it something that uh, you think is like a really good or you think it's something that has a lot of faults and is terrifying? Because you talk up Australia a lot and I don't blame you. As someone who has went without health insurance and had issues with health insurance, like that in itself is almost a reason for me to like jump ship to almost any country that offers health insurance. So I mean, I'd be dead without health, like free health insurance. I had like magic hocal septicemia when I was two years old. Wait, what um, is that? It's like a blood infection or something, like some kind of blood poisoning. Um, it's a disease that I think has a very low survivability rate. People die wow. most of the time with this disease, so I'm very lucky. Um, but yeah, like free, you know, free healthcare saved my life, quite literally. So I, I think that, yeah, I do talk up Australia. I think Australia is great. Um, I wouldn't be around to talk up America if I was American. So uh, I think that my experience with America is really limited. Um, my experience with America is essentially LA. Yeah, that's fair. And LA is I'm, I've, I've, LA is very different than the other parts of the country. I will say that. I can imagine. Yeah. So, as far as LA is concerned, um, it does feel like it feels like you're in like a Walking Dead movie at times. Like it feels like everything's about to break out at any moment, and there's zombies everywhere. You, you know, it's hard to explain, but this doesn't feel like the safest of places. Um, it feels like there's a lot's happening, and there's not a lot of regulation on what's happening. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you'll, I mean, you know, in Boston, we lived in a like $4 million house, you know, like, and it was a team house and practice house. And it was like multi-use, but um, we lived in this massive house and you walk outside and the streets would be destroyed. Like they just have holes in them and shit. And it's just like, what's going on here? Like, how, how do the people who pay for these houses not pay for the streets? You know, that's how it works in most Western countries, I, I think. Um, so I think America is a really strange place and I don't know how sustainable it is, but it's mm-hmm. been around for a long time, right? So. Maybe it's just LA. 
Maybe. I, I, it's not just LA. I'm letting you know right now that is an issue everywhere. <laughs> and it's worse than yeah, other areas. The roads areas. in Australia are very good. I'm a big fan of the roads in Australia. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm really jealous because in Michigan, the roads are something that we constantly complain about. So, um, Yeah, I think you, you should. <laughs> <laughs> it's annoying. Just, I'll take the taxes. Just fix the roads, please. Um, uh, kind of looking. People don't vote that way, though. So. Oh, I know, right? It's. That is a whole they discussion. They want four million dollar house next to a road that has holes in it. That's what they want. That's the American dream. So, yeah, I'm no, no, thank you. Uh, I guess you, if you had, oh wait, if we we could pay for public transportation because LA doesn't have that either. Like they. Can. Oh yeah, got a lot of that here too. I live on the same like I live oh. just down the road from a train station that takes me across the city. You know, for basically nothing. So. Yeah, uh, unlucky. Uh, so kind of looking at the, the schools that you grew up in, I take it education was something that, what what made you strive towards? You mentioned earlier like this wanting to succeed because you come from almost like nothing. You need to succeed. You need to force yourself to be better. When Did that start like early on in your school? Did someone kind of push that on you? Were you? Was your mom like, you need to do well in school. You don't want to be in this situation. No. Um, so my mom did push me. You know, she's not a strict parent by any means, which I do kind of credit to who I am today. Um, but I honestly, I did everything wrong in school that was possible to do wrong. Like, really? Yeah. So even the school I went to after I went, you know, left this first school, um, was quite, quite well off. It was in a well-off area, even though it was a public school. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the types of people going there were quite wealthy. Um, you know, and I, I went to the school and like. I fought people every day. Like I was, every single day, I broke all the rules and fought everybody and ruined every class possible. I was a terrible kid um, to the point where I got I got suspended several several times from the school. Um, what, what was the reason for me. the fights? Did did like looking back now? What do you think the reason was that you you did that that you got put in this uh, scenario? Sometimes you know you'd be playing marbles and the kid wouldn't give you the marble that you want and you beat him up. Like that was okay. that's the type of thing okay. that happened, right? And maybe these kids valued marbles less than I did. I don't know, but I had to get that marble back. So, um, I, I think that something that ties into who I am today, I, I think, is that once during school, um, during primary school, so we have a different schooling system. It was like grade one to seven. Mm -hmm. I would have been like grade five or something, like towards the end of my primary schooling years, moving to high school. Um, and I was ruining music class. Yeah. The kids were singing, and I would sing something else and ruin it. Yeah, and it's mm -hmm. like you can't really have someone doing that in the music class to the, in their defense. So, um, this really nice guy, the, the vice principal of the, of the school, moved me into the computing room during music class, separate from the other kids, mm -hmm. and put me onto um, solving these like logic puzzles and these doing these computer. It's like basic computer software yeah. stuff for children, like the ability to move things around and like create logic gates and whatever. Um, I loved it. You know, I immediately fell in love with it. So I really credit that guy to, to help me find some direction in my life, I suppose. Because um, music's just not my thing. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. I know that now. That's, that's interesting, because that like, one thing could literally be the thing that shaped you to who you are today. Like, could if, have helped, if, yeah. if someone doesn't put you in that and you keep going through uh, like fighting against like, uh, the school system that you're in, you don't have something else to turn to. I mean, there's there's lots of stories of individuals who end up getting kicked out of school or it progresses further as they get older. Uh, that's a very interesting thing. So you gravitated towards uh, these logic puzzles. Does that mean that you gravitated towards more like math and science too then? So in primary school in Australia, at least the math wasn't really a thing. It was just like mm -hmm. addition. Yeah. Um, 
I wouldn't say I gravitated towards anything. Any classroom environment in primary school, I, I ruined. Like, absolutely ruined. So I didn't think the subject was super, super relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my life now, I have. So I don't know if that was a sign of things to come or a coincidence yeah. or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's not something I was even into in high school. So Okay. So as you start to progress uh, more through school, what is the change that makes it so you don't have to move anymore? Um, what, what made it so it was more stable where you weren't switching schools every year? Um, no, I still had to move. The schools were just near the places we moved. Oh, okay. To. Okay. You just um, switch schools. Okay. I eventually got expelled, actually, from that school. Um, For what? Someone threw a football at my head. So, Australian football is kind of, they're kind of oblong, they're like, like mm-hmm. this. Um, and he threw one at my head, hit me straight in the head. Like, he threw it as hard as he could from, from quite a distance away. The guy's just a troublemaker. It wasn't anything personal. Um, I punched him in the face, like, as hard as I could. I just absolutely decked him. Ooh. Um, yeah, and he, like, stayed down i i guess and and in a primary school with a bunch of sort of well-off kids that wasn't appreciated in my mind it was fair but i, I respect that probably it probably wasn't mm-hmm. um and i went to a local school for a bit and that was like right before graduating so i graduated basically immediately and then I moved on to high school okay was high school any different yeah i stopped punching people <laughs> i don't know why you, you... Um, yeah, I just, I don't know, I just grew up a bit, I, I guess, or found that high school, in high school, you have a lot of control over what you're doing, which yeah. I think helps a lot, because you chose, you're always responsible for the class you're taking. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't feel like you're being forced to do anything, mm-hmm. because I, I opted to take this class or that class, right? So I'm, I'm at the end of the day, responsible, and I think that, that helped a lot. I, I think having that environment where you can choose what you do with your time is important. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe it should be more of a thing in primary school, but maybe kids aren't as made up about you know they've made up their mind about what they want to do so i you know, i understand why it is the way it is but yeah i definitely appreciate high school a lot more yeah well school in itself is a very weird uh concept and like people knowing what they want to do like I, most college students don't know what they want to do and your brain doesn't stop developing to like for males it's like between like 24 and 26 or something like that which yeah. is a interesting concept in itself like the decisions so that we put on is what you're saying yeah my brain I mean, you can still learn it's just slower from on you're it's just not going to be as fast from here on out so um i'm in the same boat so <laughs> um so but kind of looking at that this this moving schools every year did you build any close relationships because i can't imagine you would if you're moving every year no no none i don't think i know a single person from school not one <laughs> nor from uni or anything i did after that time um I mean, uh, you know, I can still talk to them, be like, hey, what's up? Yeah. And they know who I am, but we don't, we're not friends. Uh, I don't talk to anyone that mm-hmm. I've met through education. Um, the people that I know in real life now are people that I met video gaming. And okay. they live in the same city I do, and that's convenient. So they're, they're, I'd say they're my real life friends. Yeah. Okay. What is that like? Like, has it always been that way where you didn't really associate or like uh, uh, grow strong attachments with people? Has it pretty much always been like that up until like esports? Up until esports, what do you mean? Oh, is uh, it still like that? I mean, if it's still like that, then it's still yeah, like I'm that. I'm not someone that maintains relationships, I, I think I'd okay. say. I'm, I'm not someone that looks for friendship very often. I, I have some friends in LA and in Perth, and, and that number is like less than 10, I, you know, close yeah. friends. Um, I, I keep it that way, I suppose. Yeah. Why do you think that I is? Think very often. Is there? Do you think there's any specific reason for it? I don't know. I don't like people. Yeah, people <laughs> take up a lot of time, and relationships take time. And I don't like being one of those people that 
makes an effort. I know people like this, but uh, yeah. yeah, I don't want to be one of those people that makes an effort to be friends with everyone for the sake mm-hmm. of it. Right? Uh, I don't. You know, if I want to talk to you, I'll just be honest about it. Right? Like, I, I think that's an important character trait. Yeah. Um, socializing takes a lot of time, and I see the value in it from a career perspective, but it's not for me. You know, mm-hmm. I want to spend my time doing things I want to do, mm-hmm. whether that be with other people or with myself. Yeah, it doesn't matter. That, I mean, that's fine. So you were going through high school. Uh, you said that you went to uni. You went to university. Uh, did you start oh, to no, do yeah. better? I was just going to ask you, did you start doing better in uh, high school to get into uni? I don't know how it no. is in Australia, but I know that in the, the States, like a lot of times, like how well you actually do in high school influences whether or not you get to go to uni. Okay. Uh, so that can be relevant in Australia mm-hmm. as well. And many of the, but it's not as strict. And okay. I think it's far less regulated. So I actually dropped out of high school to play World of Warcraft. Um, I don't remember what I was doing at the time. I think I was raiding in like a really high-end PvE guild mm-hmm. in World of Warcraft, like a top 100 guild or something like something along those lines. And I dropped out of that uh, high school to play World of Warcraft. Um, what did your mom say developed... with that? Oh, that's what I want to know. Well, the thing about Australia is you get a lot of second chances or third chances okay. or fourth chances. Um, so one of those factors in here... I went to a place called TAFE. Every Australian's familiar with it. It's kind of like community college. Okay. Um, but they don't lie to you and say it's a college. It's just you, you're doing like a you know, trade worker type thing. You're learning like accounting or you're learning okay. nursing. Uh, so I did computer software design uh, at, at TAFE at the age of 16 after dropping out of high school. Um, so, you know, again, thanks, Australia. <laughs> Help, really helped me out there. Um, did that, got my diploma. Uh, so I got a diploma from, from this place. Um, and that came with credits to a university that was nearby. Um, so I just, it was a pretty smooth transition. You know, I dropped out of high school and went to uni. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you, you drop out of high school, you go to uni, you're playing World of Warcraft. Um, was it anything like the World of Warcraft? Was it mostly for uh, like how competitive was it? I guess that's the thing. It's like I want to ask. Like, how, like we know esports now and we see World of Warcraft picking up massive steam right now as far as like the viewership yep. um, but back then this would have been probably before yeah it would have definitely if you were still in high school it would have been before twitch because twitch didn't come out till it was uh, much before twitch yeah yeah because justin tv came out first then twitch came out um and i think own 3d came out before both i don't know something yeah, like that. i got right. mixed up um <clears throat> but this would have been before any of that so what makes you say I'm going to drop out to go play World of Warcraft? Was that like a conscious thought or was it, I just don't feel like doing this anymore? No, no, no it wasn't anything like that. Um, okay. So World of Warcraft was my priority in life. Yeah. For better or for worse. I think for yeah. better, in all honesty, and we can get to that. Yeah. Um, I dropped out like the, the typical the typical reason you would drop out for World of Warcraft is being too lazy to go to school. Yeah. Um, I developed IBS at that time. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, I had stomach pains once every like week or something like that. And it just made it easier to transition to not going, if that makes sense, because I already wasn't yeah. going on some days. Um, I just stopped going. Yeah. Okay, so but, like, that's it. I just I was doing okay. My my sub, I was doing well. I I think honestly, um, I just kind of stopped going to school. Okay, so for all the viewers out there, do you want to explain what IBS is and how it kind of affects you? Just irritable bowel syndrome. This means your your intestines don't push things around or whatever it is. You know, I don't know the medical. Yeah, it's okay. something a doctor explained to me once. So I was like, "Great, I don't care." Okay, so it wasn't because be I life. I think that there's a couple other people in esports that actually have this too, um, and it flared like yeah. the the flare ups can be uh, pretty bad for some people. So it's gotten better uh, in, in life, I think. Yeah. As a, okay, so you mentioned it's that not perfect, world, of, but moving forward. Yeah. Well, 
not everything in life can be perfect, but we work with what we got, right? So looking at World of Warcraft, you mentioned that this was something for the for the better, you think. Do you want to kind of go into that? What makes World of Warcraft something that has such a positive influence on your life? Right. So in high school, I was already someone that was around computers my whole life, right? I, I got a computer at the age of five, I think, like quite literally. And, and I got free access to that computer, unregulated, no parenting, just here's a computer, do what you want. Um, so I started playing like Need for Speed when I was five years old, you know, my first game. I try to get really good at that, and anyway, so I'm playing World of Warcraft when I'm, you know, 16. Um, and I think what was interesting about that game is I rated it quite a high level. I don't remember what when it would have been. It would have been like Wrath or maybe Cataclysm or something like that. Um, probably Wrath, yeah. And uh, I rated a pretty high level, um, and I got to work with adults, which I thought was interesting because I was a 16 year old and I was in a guild full mm-hmm. of people who were much older than 16. I think that helps a lot. That sort of socializing with people that you know, most people that, for reference, who play World of Warcraft, work nine to five. Like that's yeah. it's the game designed for that. I, I think in many ways. Um, and so I just got a lot of life experience with people who were. I mean, you know, it's online, but still, in many ways, life experience with people who are much older than me. Um, I coded add-ons for the game. You know, I coded like LUA script, Lua script. I apologize. Um, I just got a lot of computer skills in general from from the game and from gaming in general. Okay. which I think is what allowed me to easily transition into software development at the age of you know, 16. Okay, so you start doing software development at uni. Um, is that the university that you finished to to get your degree then? Yes, yeah. Okay, so you mentioned at the very start of kind of the show that someone told you that software engineering, you cannot get a job. Why is that? Because that seems very... Very odd hearing it from the states because anyone who has a software engineer uh, degree, like at least from the states, I've never heard of not being able to get a job. Really, I think it's more of a local issue. Um, okay. I think it has more to do with where I am, more so than you know, software engineers not being useful. Yeah. Of course, software engineers are useful; they're getting more and more useful every day. Yeah. Uh, and there's offshoots of software engineering which are becoming more mainstream. I think, you know, like data science, is a great one. Need low coding skills for that. Um, I'm not sure why I said that. Maybe he just wasn't competent. Yeah, I think that's. <laughs> he was that's working at McDonald's. That might be what it was. Well, I mean, he was a manager of like multiple restaurants. <laughs> I mean, he's like a competent person. He was arguably successful. I think it's not like he works at McDonald's. He's just a yeah. shit person because he works at McDonald's. Um, but you know, I think he just failed. I think that's really what that is. He failed, and if no one, it's hard for people. I think to be objective and say, I'm not attractive to hire. Like I'm not someone who people want to hire, and that's yeah. something I can work on. It's much easier to say that there's no jobs. And it's like, well, what do you mean there's no jobs? Like, there's plenty of jobs. You know, you can apply to many jobs. There's just also lots of applicants, and you have to beat them. Mm-hmm. Like, job searching is always competitive. You, you know, like, it doesn't matter if there's 200 jobs and 100 people. You, yeah. you have to be one of the 100 people that gets a job at the end of the day. And, I mean, esports is the same, right? So Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you had your own, uh, like, portfolio and website, and it was called uh, gunba.org, um, and that it's mm-hmm. down now. What was on there? And... Is Gunba just the name that you've chosen? Wow, where does that name come from? That's a great question. Um, I registered Gunba.org because it's my username. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason. .com was taken, .org was not taken, and .org domains are like nine bucks. Um, so that's why I picked that domain name. Uh, it was just—it was nothing interesting. It was just a bunch of projects I'd worked on while at the TAFE or Community College equivalent. Um, stuff I'd worked on in uni. Um, some other things, like I wrote a Diablo bot for Diablo 3. Are you familiar with the launch of that game, Diablo 3? 
I am not actually. So my game history, like growing up, consisted of uh, I played Ultima online for like ten years or fifteen years, and then I swapped to Dungeons and Dragons online, and then I swapped to League of Legends. That is like most okay. of my my gaming in a in a nutshell. Checking the Diablo three launch date, two thousand and twelve. Okay, this would have been like mid midway through my degree. Okay. Um, that, yes, my second year of college. So, right. Uh, so what I did was. Diablo 3 came out with a real money auction house. I'm sure everyone that has played any video game has heard of this monstrosity they, they created where people could quite literally spend money in the game on to buy items off the auction house and you would get the money yourself if you were selling mm-hmm. the item and this or versa, right? Um, and I was really, really, really good at scripting automation, like scripting bots, you, you know? Mm-hmm. So what I did was I made a bot for the real money auction house in Diablo 3 um, that would just constantly search for items and if someone posted something... That was too cheap, so I, I sniped on the gold auction house. But I basically made like an auction house sniper if you're familiar with that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it just buys things that are underpriced usually. Yeah, and then because of you there, right? a lot, and then you repost them later to make a profit on. And it buys them instantly, and it's a computer script. It's not a person, so it's much faster, and people yep. don't have time to realize their mistake or, or what have you. Um, ends up making, I think, over a period of a few months, fifteen thousand dollars at the age of like oh, we were like twenty or something at uni. Um, wow. With yeah, with this this script that would just watch the auction house, and because I made it myself, and there wasn't anything close to it that was publicly available, there never was. Like I think by the time someone released something that was available, they were closing the real money auction house. Um, so I made a bunch of my and just like little projects like that that I built up over my over my life. I think it really impressed interviewers mm-hmm. because it shows a certain amount of independence and like ability yeah. and creativeness that that you know most people just go through uni and don't do anything, right? And then they expect to walk up to a job interview and be like, hey, here's a degree. I have a degree. Where's my job? And it doesn't work that way because everyone has a degree. You know? Like, yeah. everyone has a degree and you need more than a degree, I, I think, to get the jobs. So, it helped. Yes. things like that helped a lot. Yeah. So, if you want to be someone to get a job, make sure that you do something creative and something that is unique from everyone else. Like, I feel Depends like Depends on what you're working at. I think, like, if you're doing medicine or something, it might be easier. You, you know, oh. like, where there's more of a, a set structure to where you're, where you're going. But yeah. if you're working in a degree that's going to lead towards, like, a What's the word? More commercial role. Or any highly, highly, highly contested job. Like, I feel like any sort of uh, highly, because if you were to be like a therapist, you could get a job in a lot of different places. Like, because the demand is just so high. You either want to pick a job field that has an extremely high demand for whatever you're going for, or if you're not going to, so like esports as an example, has, is like everyone is trying to, there's not a lot of demand needed and there's a ton of people who are there's a lot of demand for competent people, and there's not a lot of competent people, I, I think is how I'd put it. I, I think that everyone can hire enough people. So there's always yeah. a lot more people than demands, but the demand in esports is more competitive. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter if you get 15th in the Overwatch League, it's not worth anything. So yeah. you're always trying to be more competitive, and, and there's always fighting for the people that are more competent. Yeah. As, I mean, as there should be, it's esports. Yeah. So, so, so it kind of is. So, kind of looking at that, you you do these trips. How much did you make off of Diablo total? Because I imagine that About number 15, is pretty fifteen fifteen k Australian dollars. Yeah. Okay, that's that's a lot of money. To it uh, is. Yeah. It was a huh. short period of time. Yeah, it's not something that kept, could keep going. Eventually, they got better at detecting the bots. I don't mm-hmm. know if someone else was doing it. I doubt they did all this for me. Like I assume someone else was also doing this. Yeah. Um, and also the interest in the game started to die because Diablo three at launch was. Terrible. It was a terrible game. Like everyone, I think everyone knew that. Like the real money auction house just felt like a slap in the face. But you know, people had waited like a decade yeah. for another Diablo game to come out. So there's a lot of fan fervor and stuff like that. 
um, I took advantage of that. That I mean, that makes sense. So I have to ask, uh, you have this really good ability with coding and kind of creating programs. Do you use that in Overwatch League? Because I know that other people like Baroy has talked about utilizing that. Um, are you someone who uh, brings that skill set to the Overwatch League? So I've talked to Baroy many times, um, for reference, uh, about actually what, what he does and what I do. And, um, yeah, I mean, straight up, the answer, the answer is yes. I thing about coding is it's always a new language, depending yeah. on the task you're trying to solve. There's not many languages that can solve every task. Um, but I coded a computer vision system in Python for Overwatch. Uh, <laughs> so the whole purpose of it was to, you know, Overwatch League teams don't get stats and scrims, just to be straight up. Like, there's no data available to you when you do scrims in practice. Yep. Um, there is data available to you from matches, but even that data is not, you know, formatted or in any readable way. Um, the data that Blizzard will give you that's actually organized in some way is minimal or very like top level. This many kills. You know, you can't go into a specific match and be like, "This is you know, how many kills do you get in this match?" Or, or what have you. It's all very like overhead. This yeah. is how they do over the whole stage. That type of information. Um, so the the purpose of this computer vision software was to watch the game and determine what was happening in the game to give me the, the data, the raw data. And then I have a bunch of you know, other code that formulates that into usable stats and insights and um, queries that you can run and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, so it uses like Python, like OpenCV. Um, and it uses a bunch of machine learning stuff as well for certain issues with the UI that were a bit harder to read through like human-written yeah. logic. Um, but it's very similar to Winston's Lab. Like I would say okay. that's probably the, the predecessor in, in my mind. Like I, I use Winston's Lab a lot. And then after Valiant, uh, so starting season two at Boston, I was like, wow, like I, I need something that does this. I need something that gives me this data. And Blizzard's not going to do it. And Winston Slab's closing down because Barore went to Toronto. Yeah. Um, so I have to do it myself. And how hard could it be? And then, yeah, just I worked for like 16 hours a day for a month. And at the end of it, I had a working computer vision system. And uh, I'm glad I did because it, it was a great learning experience. Yeah, I mentioned it's something that you'll probably be able to take with you ever, because I'm assuming Broy is probably going to get picked up. If he's not staying with Toronto, I imagine he just goes to a different team because he just has that uh, ability to be able to utilize that information. But having, I, I don't imagine there's a lot of people uh, like you out there. I know that you do it. I know that Broy does it. Um, you're the only two that I really know. I think uh, BZ, very service level comparative to that from what the talks that I've had to him, um, wasn't doing a super in-depth uh, analytical like coding stuff. Um, but you two are like the only two that I know of. Yeah, you two are the only two that I know that actually have this. I don't know if there's anyone else out there who's just more quiet, uh, but I feel like that's an insanely valuable skill. And do you see that being something that gives whatever team has that an advantage over other teams? Or do you think it's not that big yeah, of a deal? Yeah, so I think there's a few things to talk about there. One is there is other people. Um, I know of one. Uh, he works with an Overwatch League team. I won't say which one because it's that's not fine. public at all. Um, but I helped him learn a lot of the stuff he knows about computer vision, and that team's doing quite well. Um, but yeah, there's like probably a handful, like quite literally a handful. Uh, I think that there's also services that are sold. Like there's, there's these companies trying to approach teams, yeah. um, to market these sort of systems. So there's definitely like companies doing this, right. That have teams of people working on it. And I've seen a lot of their tech demos because they came to Boston, obviously. And we always just yeah. humored them. We, we, we talk to them and, and just compare our, our software to their I mean, software. Kind of why thing. wouldn't you, right? Because you get a, a first-hand look at what everyone else might be using or might not be using. Yeah, right. Um, and while I think the technology was always really good, because I think the technology is the easy part. If yeah. that sounds ridiculous, maybe it's my perspective. But I, I don't think so. I, I think that 
the actually coding a computer vision system and working through the steps, it's just a matter of time if you're a competent software engineer. You can always solve problems and solve them until the thing works. Your design might not be good or might not be efficient or it might take a long time to watch the VODs or whatever the case may be, but you'll get there eventually. I think the big problem is the creativity aspect. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of issues with it were very creatively solved, I, I think, in, in one way. Uh, like just being able to read assists off the screen. I mean, we're talking about like, 12 by something pixels, you know, like it's, yeah. Yeah, it's probably like 50 pixels in total. Uh, so consistently reading that when the, when the bit rate is so low and, and stuff like that can be, be challenging and there's always creative solutions to these problems. Um, build security in terms of the output. So like making a computer vision system that reads the game is one thing that's like one big challenge and people can get past that, but understanding Overwatch enough to, yeah. you know, put some coherent stats together that mean something to someone. Is very challenging. Like it's a completely different ball game because you're dealing with people, not with the computer, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's where the creativity really comes in, like the ability to deliver stats in a creative way. I think Broy really did a lot for Overwatch in some of the the ways he looked at uh, how to how to visualize game data and you know, impact rating and stuff like that. He came up with a bunch of good metrics for for things like that that I think now have influenced the Overwatch League broadcast itself. Like you see player impact rating or whatever it is on the broadcast. And that's something that yeah. Brory came up with, right? Like that idea of having a metric that rated players and like old mm -hmm. efficiency rating. And that's also something that Brory came up with. Um, I think I've expanded on all of those things myself because I've had more time and I came second. Um, but yeah, I, I think that creativity is definitely the, the bigger barrier to entry for this sort of stuff. Do you think that that gives a team a notable advantage then to utilize it comparative to other teams that might not have it? I think it definitely does. Yeah, for sure. Especially in scouting. And like, I think scouting is honestly the most important thing a team can do going into a, a new season. Like, it almost doesn't matter who your coaches are. It doesn't really matter what your strategy is. It doesn't, none of that matters as much as having like 60 to 70% of an Overwatch League team is having players that are extremely talented. Yeah. Um, I think that like scouting with computer vision is like the best way to get consistent results from your scouting. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a hundred percent like the most objective way, especially when you have like, open trials and you have hundreds of people trying to try out for your team, um, you're going to miss so many things. You know, yeah. Most of these teams have three to four staff total. Uh, I don't see that changing either, like next season or anything like that. So it's like you still have to have all of these people filtered by this really small group of people. Um, and stats make that so much easier. Like You can just see objectively how, how, how well they're doing, how likely their team is to win when they play on it. Especially when you're doing like pugs and you're mixing up the players, it really, really helps a lot to like distinguish the details between players when you move them around yeah. and what their team is usually like with that player. That, that makes a lot of sense. Do you think that teams don't do a very good job of scouting? Because I've heard very mixed things uh, about that. And think, it seems like something that needs a lot of work. And like I've always thought that maybe it's... like Part of it's a time thing, I think. Because like you have someone who coaches all season and then they have to scout. And like where's, yes. yep. where's, the, where's the break in that? Like There aren't dedicated... To my knowledge, there are not a ton of dedicated scouts who their only job is to find the best talent for the next season. You're right. Um, I think that that's a huge issue. Like, I think that most teams don't have dedicated scouts. I think almost any team does. But I think scouting comes into like this sort of murky area where knowing who the best players are isn't enough. Like, mm -hmm. That's not the issue. It's not the barrier entirely. Um, I remember I had a call with Atlanta. Uh, it would have been going into season two. Mm -hmm. And he asked me who I thought were good players in the interview. And I cut this off because I felt like he was asking me for player recommendations. Yeah. I didn't want to give away that value because I was still hired by a team and me leaving Valiant wasn't set in stone at that time. Um, but I remember the first three names or two, the first two names I said were Pockpo and Deco. And they ended up on the roster. You, you know, like at some point, I think that having the ability to get players 
is more important than knowing who the good players are. Okay. Um, and you see this, and to, to put this in like concrete terms, you see this in soccer all the time, right? So mm-hmm. like in soccer, if you correlate uh, football for some people, if you're European, I apologize. Um, if you correlate teams from the amount of money they're spending versus their results, yeah. it's almost one-to-one. There's very little variation in, in that line. And I, I think that ultimately the biggest thing for a team to do is to spend more money. Like that really is it. You know, like if you look at shock, I mean, they won the overwatch league today. Yeah. Um, don't give away when this was recorded. You can cut that if you want. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. It's recorded okay, in the good, past. Good. Everyone knows. I don't care. Okay. So shock won the overwatch league. Right. And you look at their roster and it's like, none of the players they signed were like sleeper agents that no one knew. Like they're just like, who yeah. are these people? You know, wow. Where'd they come out of? It's like, no, like Valiant was looking at Moth in season one. Like Violet was the, the hottest flex support prospect coming into this season mm-hmm. shock of the team that spent probably the most money and they got the result right i mean it is that and same you know i don't want to say that coaches are exempt from that obviously they spent a bunch of money on great coaches as well yeah um and a great team house and great everything right like the team that spends the most money will always win or always do well i think is a better way to look at it yeah like maybe the difference between you know shock and vancouver is the coaching for example but like those yeah. teams are where they are because they spent money and that's the barrier to be in the grand final um, you, and we saw that last year as well. Like the the, the yeah. grand for teams that spent a lot of money on their roster. Um, so I really think that scouting is secondary to that. Um, I think scouting as a skill is more valuable on lower budget teams, mm-hmm. where you can't just look at the obvious players everyone knows and give them money. You yeah. have to find hidden gems. Um, so for lower ranked teams or teams that are cheaper than other teams, I think it then becomes really really important. And I think that's where the most value is for people that have these sort of computer vision skills. So I was going to ask you an interesting question then, because like this is, and I we I don't think either one of us really know the answer to this, but I would like to hear your uh, philosophy almost on this. Um, right now, like we know that like Shock and Vancouver spent the most money, but do they get the most assuming, gain? For assuming that, that to be uh, fair, um, but, yeah. most likely, we're assuming. Okay, I think that's an assumption that we can very reasonably. They are probably in the upper one quarter. One of the highest of, spending. Yeah, yeah, one of the highest spending teams, and they got some of the the most res, uh, best results. Um, so that means, do you think it's worth it to do that? Is it like like, because right now I see that and I'm like, this probably wasn't worth it. Like, the value that you get for actually winning the Overwatch League right now probably isn't worth the value that you spent on those teams. Um, I could be wrong on this, but it almost seems that going with uh, that route of, hey, we're going to spend less money and try to uh, keep our books in fairly good order um, and rely on better scouting seems to be the go way to go until you know that something is going to be generating money. Right, because a lot of it has to do, yeah. it seems, more with marketing um, and being able to actually market your team than it does winning. Yeah, um, I think that it's a complex question. I think that it's, it's definitely not worth it on average. Like clearly, it's not because there's probably five or six teams that spent in that ballpark and didn't yeah. win the Overwatch League. And if you don't win the Overwatch League, you've lost money. You've lost a lot of money. Like I think shock. <laughs> Winning the Overwatch League is just a result of a commitment to that spending philosophy. Um, and they got the reward. Yeah, I think winning the Overwatch League is definitely profitable, right? Like, mm-hmm. the difference between their roster and Boston's roster or whatever other roster you want to look at in terms of cost, it's the the, the prize money probably covers it. Obviously, the players get most of it, though. So, I mean, yeah. uh, not the percentages for, like, teams. I think it's, like, it was some number under 50%. But yeah. even then, it's still a loss, right? It's just better than coming second and losing money. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that it's not worth it, but I don't know what the alternative is. Like, I think these teams, a lot of them are spending VC money, like that's being funded and there's looking for more and more funding constantly. Um, in the hopes that 
Overwatch League blows up and, and the teams blow up and you know they're, they're investing <laughs> in future value, right? I think that winning is a good way to get that value. Like, it's a good way to get that that future value to be more likely in the fact that team people support Shock because they spend a lot of money, even though they don't realize they're doing that. Like, yeah, the fact that Shock has everyone's favorite players and has you know all these great players and these great coaches and this great environment and all the social media is pop, you know, public. Uh, yeah, what's the word? Um, sorry, it's three AM. My vocabulary is out the window. Um, positive. Sorry. Yeah. So like all, all the social media is positive and and people's opinion of the team. It's because they spent a lot of money at the end of the day, right? Like they spent money on people who are competent and get the job done, whatever their job may be, social media or otherwise. Um, so I think if you're if you believe in the Overwatch League and you you believe that that future value is coming one day, then yeah, absolutely. Like you should spend the money, right? If that's what you if you think that's going to happen. Uh, a lot of teams don't think that. A lot of teams think that the Overwatch League is a little more in doubt. Um, and I know this is a fact, you know, I think that there's teams that are definitely writing it out. Like they're spending less money. They're trying to keep the salaries around 50 to 80 K kind of thing per player. Hmm. Um, trying not to have 12 players, trying not to have a huge coaching staff. I think when people look at a lot of these bad teams, like this, you know, bottom half of the league, a lot of these teams are probably choosing to lose Yeah, in a way. Like they're choosing not to spend the money on the players that would win them the Overwatch League. Um, and you see that with a player like Decay, like take Decay as three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, I don't know if that's true, but I'm sure like the numbers ballpark somewhere. It's a it's a large number, whatever it is. I'm willing to bet it's like, well, at least it's. I think it's over two hundred, and I don't think it's that much under three hundred. That's what I would guess. Right. Yeah, it's a large, large number, and I, I feel that like if you're a team that looks at that and says no, then you've chosen to lose. Yeah. And reasonably, that might be the right thing to do. Um, but is there any teams that? Don't spend any money, but still have a lot of fans. Outlaws? Not, not really. Yeah, I don't know Outlaws how much might be the only one. I was gonna say Outlaws but probably. Outlaws pays a lot for their players. Yeah. As I understand it, um, which is probably why they're not doing well financially. That's, that is sad. Um, they might be a sign of things to come, right? But yeah. we could, we could. I don't think we can include them. I think, like, based on the fact that they came from the Optic brand, which is huge, and they did spend a lot of money and then ran out of money. Like, I think they're actually a warning yeah. sign for teams that are spending a lot of money. Um. I don't know. It's a trade-off. I, yeah, I, think I, I mean, I can't. I can't. Maybe Shanghai, but they had the whole underdog thing going, where they did so bad that, like, season one, that people were like, "Oh my god!" Uh, like yeah, they, yeah. they want to support. So think, you either you need to do that, like the worst possible you could do. It feels um, bad because, like, the worst a team's doing, probably the more financially viable that team is. Yeah. But then I don't want to watch that team or work for that yeah. team. So I don't know how to like balance that in my head. I know. It's really a big conflict. It's a big problem. Mm -hmm. Are you scared about like that this idea that it's all just being VC funded and they're they're hoping that it pays off? Like as someone who works in, in esports, are you ever worried that, oh, hey, next year this this all could be gone? Or are you just kind of riding it out and being like, you know what? I'm I'm doing the best I can. I'm being financially stable with this. I know it could be gone next year and I'm gonna ride it out. I think you would have to be a truly stupid individual to, to come into the Overwatch League and commit to it 100%. Right? Mm -hmm. I think you'd have to be actually out of your mind. Like, I, I think that there's a lot of warning signs that indicate that the League is not doing as well as you might think, or that it's not going to be future-proof, um, yeah. even though it's a great opportunity. I think that you always, as a player, as a coach, as any any role on any team, you have to have a backup plan. You, yeah. you have to think about it. And like people say that. you know, They say it like, Oh, make sure you have something else you want to do after esports. And then I think players get misled into thinking in their minds that what's meant by that is like, okay, after you're done being a great, successful player and made bank, 
you know, think about what you're going to do with your money. You know, like that's the kind of like mindset I think yeah. is being conveyed in reality. Like, no, you should really, really think about like what happens if the Overwatch League is gone tomorrow. You know, like think about that. Like that's really, really important. Um, like that's, that's the best advice I can give to players. Cause I, I think that and I live that advice myself, you know, like I have my degree to fall back on, which I did before committing to esports. Yeah. Um, luckily I didn't have to make a choice. It, I'd already done everything and I was moving into a work and, and made mm-hmm. that choice. Um, but you know, Overwatch has got me really into like data science and statistics, and I really want to work in that field as well. So that maybe I'll do more education after Overwatch League. I have that option. I've saved up a lot of money from the Overwatch League. I mean, not yeah. a lot because I'm a coach, but you know, like relatively speaking, a lot. Um, and yeah, I'm just keeping my coding skills up to date. Uh, and, you know, and, like when I talk to Overwatch League teams for for job opportunities, like I'm doing this season, I do mention that I'd be happy to work in an analyst role, mm-hmm. preferably not with the title of analyst because that title's been completely ruined. But um, yeah, working on data science and, and stats and programming and stuff like that, because I realized that would translate better into a job in the future. And I think that you can also future-proof yourself through other games. You know, like COD is yeah. you know, going to have a big league, right? That's, yeah. that's something that might be happening. So maybe looking at COD, like I'm probably going to play COD when it comes out with the mindset that like, man, you know, maybe I want to keep this on my radar. Like maybe there's something I want to have as an opportunity. I, I like shooting games. Why not, right? Um so I think that that's also another thing you can do. I've seen a lot of players move to Apex Legends, right? Like that's I've seen yeah. really common with uh, like asking Silk Thread, um, you know, Grim uh, Reality, like play. Yeah, asking came back obviously, but these are players yeah. I work with, all of them, um, and they're doing really well in Apex Legends, at least you know Grim and, and Silk are. So you, you have to be open to opportunities like that, and, and they were, and they're still in esports because of it, right? So yeah, I think people that are super fanatical about the league are crazy, and you should be objective. You should look at the facts. That's fair. I wanted to actually, you brought up a very interesting thing in titles. Um, and this is something I get very upset with a lot of the time is like the way that titles are kind of used in esports. Um, and you mentioned oh, analysts. Yeah. Um, uh, I see people use, uh, people throw out the term psychologist all the time, which bothers me to no end because there's actually like legal rep in the United States there are legal ramifications for that title. Like you have to have certain things lined up. That's why I don't call myself a psychologist, but everyone does. And it tilts the shit out of me every time. But another one I see is like performance coach and like what that means or, and like I've actually moved away because the people who started taking that title, um, I was like, I really want there to not be, I want people to understand what I do and not be like, what does that actually fucking mean? Like, uh, so I don't I, know what that means. I mean, you're I, right. <laughs> that's, so I switched to mental skills coach because that at least kind of I work with people's mentality. That is what I do. Um, I could just do mentality coach too, and that would be fine. Um, but like titles are a issue that I kind of have. Why do you think that they're not like used properly or like what's I don't understand it. It just it kind of drives me insane that there isn't some sort of standard. I think it helps with job translatability. So it helps with the ability to move on to another job, right? Yeah. It, it clearly spells out the area in which your, your job resides. But I, I definitely think that there's, I think there's a good understanding of what each role is within the teams. Like I, mm-hmm. I could generally figure out what each role does on each team. Um, but I, I think publicly there's absolutely no, no one has any idea what the job titles mean. Like they're just, they might as well be in a different language. They mean nothing like a head coach, assistant coach, GM, you, yeah. you know, like, analyst performance coach these are all those titles that have absolutely no meaning that relates to anything like what their actual title is um and like it varies from team to team right but like analyst is one that's been absolutely butchered like the majority of analysts i think in the overwatch league record vods they're not computer programmers they're not data scientists they're not analysts like just to be frank that's not not what that title means in any other field anywhere yeah um 
analysts analyze data. You know, uh, you could make it simple in that way, and and you would already eliminate most of the analysts in the Overwatch League, probably ninety mm-hmm. percent of them. Like, uh, I just think that I'm not sure what the solution is. I, I think that job titles in esports are a bit of a joke because people want titles that make them sound important. Yeah, uh, maybe that's why. And as a result, no one's title sounds important. It's like a title economy. Yeah. Um, but it feels like, it feels like it curves off the other way at the top end of like you know head coach assistant coach. It feels like assistant coaches do way more than they get credit for as well. So it's like it's a sort of weird thing, I, I, I guess, where like at the top people want to take credit, at the bottom people want more credit. Yeah. 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 For me, the whole reason for like a title and like in my head, I want people to like read this title and be like, oh, I know exactly what you do. Like that's in my head. That just makes sense. And then when I when I see things and when I hear analysts, I think data analyst. I expect someone to go through and be able to analyze and give solutions to what is currently happening. That is that is what I expect. And the fact that it doesn't happen just kind of blows some direction on like what could be going wrong or like we should look over here or not. Yeah, it doesn't happen. Analysts don't yeah. do analyst work. To yeah. Me. Like, I, I would never accept that title. Even if the work I was doing was fit for that title, I would literally never accept it. What, um, what title I mean, would you look for? Free. Well, it depends on the job. But, like, <laughs> I, can give, I can give some examples. Yeah. Um, so, right now, like, when I talk to, you know, I've been, I've been interviewing with teams and things are going really well. Like, I won't go into specifics, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I would never accept the title analyst ever. Like, and none of them have talked to me about that title. Like, I've always, I've offered the head coach, uh, you know, or analyst position, like those are the two I'm sort of looking for. Um, bit, bit of a you know, diff, uh, distance yeah. there, I guess, but um, <laughs> I would never accept the title analyst. Like that's something that I, no one would offer it to me either. Like they, based on my skill set, people would realize that that's not what an analyst means in esports. So we're not going to offer you that title. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at Valiant, like one of the first things Noah ever said to me was like, "Okay, we want your job title to be analyst," and I was like, literally an Australian nobody, and I said, "No," I was like, "I'm not." I want the title assistant coach because I realized that's what I was going to be doing. Right. And yes. I earned that title at Valiant. It turns out, but that was the plan for me at Valiant initially. Like I was offered a title I didn't want and I, I was smart enough to say no at the time. Okay. I mean, that is, uh, let's, let's talk about that. Like, so you were working um, for the government. Um, did you quit your job to join blank esports? Let's get into your whole esports spiel. Okay. Yeah. So I was playing Overwatch. Um, just tied into World of Warcraft. I was playing with World of Warcraft friends, actually. Makes um, sense. And we started playing Quick Play. Like we just spammed Quick Play, and all these TF2 players were coming from you know TF2, and they're coming to Overwatch, thinking like, "This is it. This is the <laughs> game we've been waiting for. We're going to be the best at this game." Um, and we were just spamming Quick Play like twenty four seven while these teams were you know doing scrims back then. We had no idea what scrims were. Yeah. Um, and. They made fun of us. Like, there's an Australian Discord. It's an absolutely heinous place. Like, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, people there just don't don't care about you know PC or social customs or anything, which is what makes it great. I think in many ways. Um, but we're on the Australian Discord, um, which like is a bit huge, huge Discord. Like every Australian Overwatch League player, Overwatch player is in this Discord. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they shit talked us, and they were like, "You guys just play quick play. Like, what the fuck? Why are you talking shit? Whatever. It was just some stupid drama. You know, like." low-level crap um and we entered the tournament actually and we beat them on a map and then the tournament the servers went down during the tournament and we left on that note um and then we never lost again yeah we just started winning everything in australia um and that's how we got signed to tempo storm originally well Mm -hmm. i got signed to tempo storm originally as like the first you know big australian sponsorship if you want to call it that how, how much were you making? I was gonna say, how much is a big Australian? Five hundred bucks a month. Five hundred bucks a month for an Australian esports player. That's just like absolutely sign me up. 
Okay. Signed immediately. Had to do like YouTube content. There's some old YouTube videos with Tempest on. If you want to watch them, they're absolutely horrible. Um, but I got kicked from that team, I, I think, within a year or so. Um, maybe even less for being someone who was... So I was the leader of the team of, of Tempest mm-hmm. on Australia. I was like the team captain. Um, this is before I quit my job just to make sure I'm still following the timeline you mentioned. Yeah. Um, I was the leader of the team and I was, I was fairly abusive, I would say. I was an abusive leader. Like that's, I think that's fair to say. Um, if someone fucked up, I would, I would yell at them. I would immediately confront them and just be like, what the fuck? Like, how could you make that mistake? Why did we do this wrong? And, you know, like I was an asshole. Like I was <laughs> straight up, I was just yeah. an asshole. And I got kicked. And I think it didn't help anyone. Well, it actually helped me more than it helped them. I don't mean that in like a facetious way. I mean, the yeah. team tanked like immediately. Like I was a big part of the team in a positive way. Um, but I also brought a lot of negatives to the team as a, mm-hmm. as a player. And I respect that, you know, they made the decision they did. They didn't want to play with me anymore. It made, made practice bad, made matches bad. Um, so I think they made a good decision, but it mm-hmm. helped me a lot in learning that you have to communicate with people and empathize to some extent. Um, and you have to like understand what people are saying and like talk to them on their level and, and really like be friendly and, and not take your feelings out on people. Yeah. Um, and so I was able to come back on another team and then help that team become the best team in Australia, um, which then became Blank Esports. Like that eventually okay. turned into a sponsorship opportunity. We took down the original team that I was kicked from, Tempo Storm. I think we're, I think we're under the Jam Gaming name, and then we left and became like Fusion Girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the highest rating on Gossy Gamers at some point, <laughs> for what that's worth. Yeah. <laughs> Number one so, in the world. Can, I, can, I, can we take a, a side divot here? I want to ask you a question. One of the things you actually mentioned in an interview is that you were incredibly uh, shitty, like, as far as like social socially like a lot of times you were not very good socially was this has this always been the case and was this one of your like first experiences that kind of helped shape um the ability to like understand social dynamics a little bit better yeah um so to be clear i didn't really do much in terms of anything any kind of social interaction until i was like 21 or something and and at uni and, and even then like minimal um and like the Overwatch League, yeah, I'm a different person. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a social person yeah. by any means, but yeah, I'm the guy who gives speeches at halftime to a room full of players who have no idea what to do. You know, like, I think we have the league record for reverse sweeps from halftime speeches. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I've definitely changed as a person. Um, and I think that's why, that's honestly the value I take from the Overwatch League is just the human development aspect of it, like becoming a more functional human being and someone that can communicate more effectively. Um, yeah, Overwatch League has changed my life. Like, I, I'll never regret joining the Overwatch League, mm-hmm. even though each year, in, in a nutshell, is absolute hell. Like, it's absolute stress. It's so stressful. Yeah. It takes up so much time. The you know conditions can be bad for reasons that can't be fixed. Like, just the work hours. You know, like um, there's a lot to complain about. But like, people are still here, and they're here because the life experience is second to none. You, you know, like you can't get this kind of life experience working in any other job. Yeah. So I think as long as you go into esports with the mentality that like. This will help me improve as a person, and you don't sacrifice like more traditional goals, you know, career goals. Then I think esports can be a really good choice. Um, so yeah, I'm not social, but I'm much better at socializing. Okay, awesome. So after uh, you guys get signed up, you become blank esports. I'll let you continue from there. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this team, the the Fusion Girls team, that got signed to Blank Esports, they were like, "Hey, we'll fly you to Taiwan for." OPC, I can't remember what the actual acronym stands for, but it's the Pacific Contenders, basically. Mm-hmm. It's the original Pacific Contenders uh, in Taiwan. And we lived in Taiwan for like a year. Mm-hmm. I think we came second and we came third the subsequent year. So, like, decent placings, I guess. We lost to 
I think Flash Wolves the first year, and then we lost to uh, Ardiant the second year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that team had has players like uh, Trill, like you know Trill from, yeah. from Dallas Fuel, like Dallas he was Fuel. the main tank of that team. Uh, Aichuop, who was on Team CC recently, is on the World Cup team as well. Um, RQT, he's the coach of Order, the contenders winners from Team Australia, um, and like a you know, bunch of other players as well. Um, so a team with a lot of special people. I, I would say people that had some kind of ability to do something in some field. Um, so obviously we're pretty good for an Australian roster. Like we performed well above, I think, expectations considering we're Australian. Yeah. So keeping in mind the prize pool for that tournament was like 300 grand, like both years. That's why I was so incentivized, like why I quit my job actually. Um, but we lived in this like shitty house in Taiwan for a year. Taiwan's a lovely place, but man, that house sucked. Um, <laughs> just lived on like ramen, you know? <laughs> yeah. Just the traditional esports lifestyle. You're sharing a room as like a 24 year old, I think I was, you know, like, yeah. It's not a positive experience, but I was willing to sit through it because I realized what it was. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, like, I kind of realized that it wasn't going anywhere. About two years in. Oh, no, about, about sorry, it's two seasons in. So about the end of the first year. Yeah. I realized that, like, man, like, we just, like, just put some context on our results, right? We got top eight at APAC, which is, like, the biggest Chinese tournament. It had, like, a runaway and GC Basan, all these great teams. And, like, mm-hmm. Envision Esports from NA was there. Got top eight at that. Um, Came second in contenders to a team that has, like, let me just give you the names here, like Michelle, um, I think Dam's on that team. Smurf was on that team from Shock. He's now an Overwatch yep. League winner. Um, I'm forgetting, like, half of that team, but literally every single person on the team that came first was is in the Overwatch League. Mm-hmm. And then we, we played at BlizzCon, you know, in front of 8,000 people, and almost 3-1 three, three Canada. We lost by, like, one fight to Canada. And that's a team that had, like, XQC and yep. Notes and, like, five Overwatch League players on the team and you would think after all these accomplishments you know after blizzcon um that we would get some overwatch league offers i don't mean for myself i just mean for like even my teammates like people like trill you know who really have the potential to do something and none of us got a trial anywhere i think atar got one trial with boston out of like 12 teams i have six players after we were competitive with two full overwatch league rosters mm-hmm. you know and like none of us got a trial like not one person and i think you have to be objective there and say like there's a problem there right like I was going to say, is that, does that come back to that scouting problem that we talked about where people don't actually know how to scout? Because actually on like the list of things I wanted to ask you about is like Australia does not get picked for talent that often. There is Trill. Never. There is Custa. There is... Uh, Custa looking didn't at, even play Overwatch in Australia, to be clear. Like he's not, he's Australian, but he's not like an Australian Overwatch yeah. League player. Like he's someone that played in NA. He moved to NA yeah. to play esports for this reason to avoid this problem and i think he made a really good choice probably smart uh, so, so th- th- that 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 trill i think is the only he's the only overwatch league player then who actually played in australia um and if you look at coaching staff in owl it is you and i think avala was from australia that i don't know how, what that is i just know that she's from i think australia, she has australian I think. citizenship i think she grew up in new zealand but okay. <laughs> basically the same thing and color okay. x i guess is, yeah yeah. Australia so, and New Zealand are real close. But, but there's there's not a ton who have been scouted from Australia. And there is it seems that there is definitely talent in Australia. Maybe not as much talent, but there is definitely some talent in Australia. And you mentioned that people aren't even getting like tested. They're not even getting this chance to to test. Does that come back to that scouting problem, or do you think there's something else? Yeah, so I think people just look at they're biased. I think they're just biased. I think that's the reality. Like no no one would look at those results objectively and not think, hold on, like is someone on this team good? Yep. Like people would make that assumption automatically, but no one looked at those results, right? No one gave a shit. Like mm-hmm. or they chalk it up to maybe Canada choked to BlizzCon or maybe, you know, maybe Pacific Contender sucks and like no one ever does the hindsight analysis on the fact that like 
man, all these people went to Overwatch League and these people almost as good didn't go to Overwatch League. Like maybe some of those players should or, mm-hmm. um, and that's why I became a coach. Like that's actually the, the actual reason. Cause I was like 25 years old, uh, when I had started looking to become a coach or something like that. And, uh, I was like, I was objective about it. I was just like, people are biased against Australians and this is pointless. Like no one's ever going to trial me for Overwatch League. It doesn't matter that shit on Team Canada on stage. It's irrelevant. Like that's not a yeah. factor. So I should become a coach. Um, and I just messaged everybody. I started talking to people at BlizzCon. I tried everything. You know, obviously I had a software engineering degree, which having any kind of education at all going into early esports and Overwatch yeah. is massive. Like I got a job at Valiant, you know, through sheer luck. Um, and I worked to turn that into something, and we came season, we came second in the regular season. So I'm very happy yep. with that. Um, yep. As you rubbed it I, into me over DMs, like, oh, shit on gladiators. Thanks, fam. Hey, everyone's Thanks. talking about DPay. I'm just saying four one against DPay here. Yeah. I've lost once, won four times. Just yep. yeah, if anyone's looking, hey, hit me up. <laughs> um, I don't know how Boston beat fucking gladiators. That blows my mind. Anyway, um, so after BlizzCon, I yeah, just literally just became a coach. Like I even told one of my, my managers on the team, I was like, I'm going to become an Overwatch League coach. And they were like, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm like, it's going to happen. And I just went and did it, you know, and like, uh, you yeah. know, it takes that kind of perseverance, I guess, to get somewhere in life. So yeah, it's a good, good lesson. Um, yeah. So I, I, looking at Valiant, I actually have a lot of questions about Valiant. Because um, obviously actually, you one got... more thing. To tie oh, I forgot one thing. Um, and something I decided to do, like, because, I, you know, I, I take pride in being Australian, as you probably have noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done a lot. I've done everything I can to try and get Australians opportunities. Like I've really, 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 really worked hard. Like I'm pretty sure I got Trill his current position on, on Dallas by literally messaging his contenders coach. I mean, like, dude, this guy, like, please trial this guy. Um, and like, I, I try and do as many favors as I can for, for those guys. Cause it's a lot of the same players and a lot of them are really talented and there's still more of them that should be in the league, but are not. Um, so I just try to, you know, I try to set them up with those opportunities. Like I, I don't, try and get them places they shouldn't be. I just make yeah. sure if they, they are good enough that they, they get noticed. Um, so in terms of like this year, like I'm really hoping Punk makes Overwatch League. That kid is really, really good at the game. Like 100% mm-hmm. deserves to be in Overwatch League. We have like Aichu up, who's like, should have been in the league already. He's just not, I don't know why. Um, but he's a really, really good hits game player. And then you have like, you know, anyone on the World Cup team, I, I think should get a trial. Like they're players that I coach myself and I pick them. Um, with the help of Face, who's a really good coach. He's a coach of uh, Talon Esports, who won mm-hmm. Pacific Contenders. And he seems to get overlooked. Like, the fact that no one's picked up Face blows my fucking mind. You talked about, like, scouting. I think I think yeah. scouting is the best in the world. Um, so anytime I can talk about Australians, uh, I try. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's an important distinction to make. You're not saying I'm getting them jobs. You're saying, just give them a shot. I'm trying to get yeah, them. I'm just getting them get, opportunities. Yeah. Just get a shot and let them prove themselves. Because you have such faith in some of these people that you know if they get the shot, they can prove themselves. Yeah, in most cases, they're not good enough, but like, they yep. deserve a chance. More so than some of these people who grew up in NA and just played NA ranked, and that's enough. That's enough to get into Overwatch League. You know, like that's that yeah. seems like bullshit to me, because Australians don't even have a ranked that we can play. Like, the ranked server in Australia is unplayable. It's a complete joke. Like, it's not somewhere you can practice. So for an Australian to be good at the game shows, like, real perseverance. You know, you know it shows, like, really defying the odds. Like, even right now, the World Cup team scrims on Japanese servers on 130 ping against Korean contenders teams. Like, that's the practice we have. That's the option we have, you know? And, yeah. like, the reason Australia does so well at World Cup every year is because we scrim Korean teams. Yeah, that's the secret, right? That's the secret ingredient. Yeah. Um, but that takes a special kind of person to, I, I think, to show up to scrims every day for a World Cup team and play, yeah. like, some of the best rookies in the world on 130 ping 
and then lose a fight and be like, we lost because we didn't do something, you know, not because we had the high ping or because they're Korean yeah. or whatever the excuse is. Like, just treating every game as winnable and starting from there. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that, that takes a, a ton of uh, perseverance to go through that I don't know if a lot of people had. And I would like to see more. Like, I, I remember looking through and looking through your, your World Cup and the way that you guys decide to do it. And we might as well hit that thing as we're talking about World Cup right now a little bit. Yeah. Um, one of the things you decided to do was you weren't going to have a, a, a seventh player. You're going to bring another coach in, which I thought was fucking ingenious. Like, I was like, makes actually absolute 100% sense to do this and i don't know why more teams don't actually do this um so i have to ask you the other overwatch world cup teams do you think they actually take it to the same level of ser seriousness that like you guys do because you're per uh, persevering you have to show, show you have to show up you have to kind of like prove yourself even though people set this expectation of you guys that isn't very realistic like everyone expects australia to do semi-decently but like all the things that are environmentally there are just not set up for you guys to have the most success it's all about perseverance for you guys going through do you think that other overwatch world cup teams just don't care as much or that they don't treat it as seriously they don't, and they don't have to because they they have advantages. Like you're, if you're selected for Team USA, you're good to go. You know, you're gonna get a sponsorship from T-Mobile. You're gonna get like loads of fans. Um, you're gonna get teammates that are already Overwatch League players like yourself. It's gonna be great. Like you're gonna get a coach from the Overwatch League. Um, if you're Korea, like you're, if you you're selected, you've won, you've already won World Cup at that point. You're a World Cup winner. Like <laughs> being on the team is enough. If you're Australia, like you have to, you have nothing. You have to fight. Like you, you know, us getting top eight every year is. A colossal struggle like it's mm -hmm. we, we have so many challenges that just don't apply to other teams like even even last year you know i think we only played we didn't play goats by the way at all last year and we still got top eight um we're the only team at the event not playing goats mm -hmm. other than like china who sometimes didn't do it and i'm pretty sure they stole it from us anyway because we scrimmed them all the time um but like we couldn't practice doomfist because at doomfist at 170 ping in practice you know, like we just can't play certain heroes. Like we're playing a completely different game, and it's the same this year. Doomfist is currently meta, so like us playing Doomfist is really difficult. Um, so I'm not sure like how it keeps happening. I think it's just raw work ethic and, and talent, and just like trying as hard as we can. Because mm -hmm. I think for these Australian players, if you're an Australian Overwatch Overwatch player, you're someone that like really, really, really cares. You, yeah. you know, I, I think you, you have to work for it. As for the coaching thing, um, yeah, look, I think other teams have thought about it, or they've had players that are, like good coaches. But I took seven players, so I, I've had the luxury of having you know two consecutive uh, coaching World Cup jobs, yeah. as well as playing the the year before that. Um, I think a lot of teams. So we, we we took seven players, and the seventh player, and this happened for a lot of teams, but the seventh player did nothing. Like Yuki was basically yeah useless to the team. Like he's a good player. He almost got a spot on the team. It was him or CKM. Um, his talent's not so much the issue. It's just like we had to pick one, and there's no point training. You know, yeah. keeping in mind, like, I was an Overwatch League coach on Valiant at that time, and these guys are contenders players in Australia, so I have to teach a lot of the game to them. Yeah. Um, and that takes a lot of time, and I didn't see the time investment as worth it, so I just benched Yuki straight up. Like, it's that simple. Um, and he didn't really have a role on the team, and I felt bad about that. Like, it sucks having someone there that wants to play and is watching these other people live out this dream, and he can't do that. And, like, yeah. I didn't want to do that to someone. You, you know, like, that's it's so pointless and such a waste of time. And, like, I just take their computer anyway. Like, we get seven computers in the practice area, so coaches don't get an extra computer. Um, I was like one of the only coaches that took a player's computer and like had my own computer and six other players. Mm -hmm. and, like I was able to give screen feedback during you know during the day, right? And we won. We got into BlizzCon by like one map, you, you know, like it made the difference. Yeah. I feel like, um, and I think that's something you have to do as an Australian is just make objective choices about what you do at the World Cup. Like you have to do that because 
you don't have any, there's no excess. You don't have an excess of talent or like money or anything, like practice opportunities. So you have to create a benefit somewhere else to, to, to counteract that. Um, we took face in particular because he's someone who I think he's honestly like I've worked with a lot of coaches and Overwatch League coaches, and he's he's one of the best people I've worked with. Like he's super intelligent, he's really 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 hardworking, and he's like an excellent talent scout. Like he's exceptional at scouting. Um, he's exactly what so many teams need, and I talk to him like every day about Overwatch. I'm still blown away about how good he is at his job. Yeah, and like the proof is in the pudding. I, I guess in the sense that. He won contenders twice in Australia and then moved to Talon Esports and won Pacific contenders with Talon Esports. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a guy that should have already been in the league, and the only reason he's not is because he's Australian. Like, that's it. It's just literally discrimination. Like, he, he blatantly should be in the league. There's so many coaches who are unproven or haven't won anything or don't coach winning teams, yeah. and they're constantly getting into the league and then getting kicked. And it's just like, just get this guy. Like, so I put him on the team. I think he's, he's already added more value than a seventh player would have. Like, we're doing really well in practice. So I think it's helped a lot. I think that's incredibly smart. So I just wanted to kind of get some of your thoughts on that because I thought it was very unique and I thought it was an ingenious idea. I thought it was really smart. Um, So going back to Valiant, you get onto Valiant. um, You get hired when Cuddles is head coach. Uh, You went through some... You've been you've had some interesting time with coaches, and I, I won't lie. Like Valiant in itself, I would be terrified to be that head coach because I swear to God, every stage one by the end, that head coach has gotten cut two years in a row. Just throwing that out there. Um, it is a terrifying. I hope that doesn't happen. I don't think it will happen, but I really hope it doesn't because I think Packing Ten is really smart for Valiant right now, um, and he seems yeah, really really I, good. Actually, yeah, I went to dinner with him recently. He's a great guy. Yeah, I like Packing Ten. Yeah. So uh, I want to talk about, you said it was kind of uh, almost like a miracle that you got hired to uh, Valiant. Uh, what was the process of getting hired to Valiant? Was it, did it have a lot to do with like Cuddles giving you a chance? Was it someone else who brought you in? Uh, what was the process getting into Valiant? So Cuddles gave me a chance. Yep, that's literally what happened. Um, no, no other office, no other team was interested. Um, literally just Valiant. Like Valiant was the only offer I had, so I took it. Mm-hmm. Um, I messaged them. I think I messaged them. I contacted every team, like I mentioned before, mm-hmm. uh, and they responded. And Cuddles, you know, he asked me to do like a review of a VOD and send them back a text document explaining what I thought about the VOD and what I thought the issues were with the, the team. Because Valiant, uh, as a model, had had a bad yeah. contender season directly prior to Overwatch League, right? Like their roster was really in doubt. Um, I just clearly explained what was wrong with each player and like what they need to fix and what was wrong strategically and how they lost every map and match and so on. Um, and it was like probably, it was probably like ten pages or something ridiculous. You know, I really put my heart and soul into this thing. Yeah. Um, and that's why they hired me. And then you know, I get there, I'm told that I'm going to be an analyst, and I'm like, no. Um, and then I get there physically, like I get my visa, and I'm told that I'm going to be an analyst again in person. And I'm like, no. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, I guess. Do you have a follow-up question? Like, uh, I don't oh know, yeah, I was going to no, season no, one. No, that's, that's what I was going to ask Lee. I was going to have you kind of go through uh, a lot of the season, but one of the things that happened is Cuddles got cut at the end of stage one. And it's kind of what I will lead you to is I want to know, like, what was it like working underneath these different coaches? Because I imagine you pulled something from at least all of them um, and you, you've you got to work underneath Cuddles. You've got to work underneath uh, Moon. I don't know who's Boston Ted coach, uh, but we'll talk about that at the end of that because uh, that's yeah, a... Do I, uh, no idea. <laughs> so that'll be an interesting discussion itself, but let's do Valiant first. Like, you obviously worked underneath Cuddles and Moon 
soon. And both of those coaches got fired from Valiant. So there was, I'm assuming that there are issues with their coaching style, but maybe kind of go through um, what it, what was your experience working underneath them? What do you think their pluses or strengths were? Um, do you think that there were huge problem areas? Do you think that they deserve to be fired or do you think it was a systematic thing? So yes, I think they both deserve to be fired. And that's not like a slide against them. I'll no. explain my reasoning for that. It's not like, a, you know, I'm not insulting them or something. I'll be objective. So I got there uh, working under Cuddles. I think he's someone that really didn't have a lot to work with. So he got mm -hmm. given this roster of extremely experienced players, wasn't very experienced himself, and he lost their respect as a result of that, uh, as a result of not really having compelling things to say about the game. Yeah. Um, which is something I, you know, I was a pro player, so I, that's where I fit in really, really well, is I was able to talk to the players and interact with them. Um, and I still have good relationships with the Valiant players, obviously. Um, we had a good season. I guess that's how that works, right? Uh, so Cuddles is someone that just lost the players' respect, and you know, okay. they replaced him with um, with Damon Bates, first. old coach. Well, Wasn't no, Damon it was someone that Damon came in because he's you know we needed someone that could yeah. work with the French players more. They were from Rogue. They had like a different understanding of the mm -hmm. game, whatever. So Damon came in. Um, Damon wasn't the head coach though. I don't think. I thought he point. was in. Wasn't he interim head coach for a bit? I could be remembering this like, wrong. Maybe maybe that was like something that was publicly said. Okay, that might have been something internally, publicly said. Internally, we didn't know what the fuck we're doing. We was arguing all the time. So, um, and the moon got there. Like fate, so fate was you know fate new moon from yeah. from uh, Ardeon. Actually, the team that won the Pacific Contenders I was talking about with DM and Michelle and so on. Mm -hmm. That same team. I've actually seen Moon in real life prior to meeting him in LA, um, in Taiwan of all places, I guess. Uh, but Moon came in, and Moon's a much more experienced coach. You know, yeah, someone that really under he's a Korean coach, and he coaches in a traditional Korean style, and then so on. And you know, there's pros and cons to that, obviously. Um, but he, you know, he came in and he gave us a lot of direction, and I learned a lot from Moon. We had disagreements for sure, which we can get to, but I learned a lot from him. Um, in in the sense that he had a lot of like endemic knowledge about how to coach, like it's how to how to conduct yourself and how to talk to players in a way that demands respect from those players and how to deliver feedback and, and how to make smarter players, I think is a really big part of it. And that's something that Krusty uses a lot as well. I know for a fact. So um, I think I definitely got a lot of the right coaching guidance from Moon in, mm -hmm. in a way. Um, I always question things. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not someone that ever accepts like, Oh, this guy's a great kid coach guy. And he said this thing and I should do this. I always like yeah. question everything. So it can be difficult to work with sometimes, but uh, I learned a lot from him. So I really, really appreciate the opportunity I had to work with Moon. Um, but I guess we're jumping ahead of the whole season if we talk about Moon getting fired, right? We can do that and come back. It's fine. Yeah, um, I mean, we, we can go through the season too if you want. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Uh, so Moon uh, eventually... So basically, I, I show about why I left before I talk about Moon getting fired because they're kind of related. Um, basically, by the end of the season, I was fed up with Moon, to, to be completely frank. I'd argued with him a lot uh, throughout the season about decisions we're making about the roster and who to sign and Mm -hmm. You know, um, in hindsight, I think I made a lot of the right calls. I think I made a lot of the calls that led to the the rebuild. I don't remember the rebuild with like space being put onto the roster and like yeah. we signed like KSF. I, you know, a lot of, and, and Costa Franco that trade. A lot of those are things I pushed for. Um, so I'm proud of like the decisions I made then. Not decisions, but you know, opinions that I gave yeah. that resulted in something happening. Um, but you know, by the end of the season, and maybe because we didn't do as well in the playoffs, me and Moon didn't really get along. Um, and, you know, I heard the plan for season two, you know, and, you know, it was signing Kuki and it was doing all the stuff, right? Like all the stuff that we saw unfold at the start of the season. I was like, I don't think this is going to work. Like, I don't think this is the play. Um, and I honestly just 
wouldn't accept it, like the things we were doing um, with the roster. So that's honestly why I left. And, you know, I uh, you know, joined Boston after that, and then Moon gets fired. Um, I think Moon's got fired because the results were bad. Yeah. I think that Moon's someone that works really, really, really well with Korean players, right? Like he's a Korean head coach. His English is not super amazing. It's gotten a lot better, to his credit. Um, but he's really a head coach type of person, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. More of like a leader than an in-game leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, like, with the, I think he's on Shanghai now. And I think that's a great decision. Like, I, I think he'll fit there a hundred percent. He's already worked with some of those players, like you know, DM obviously. Um, so I think for Moon, it just wasn't the right fit. If that makes sense, like he, yeah. he wasn't, his skill set wasn't the skill set needed at Valiant towards the end. Um, but absolutely will be needed at Shanghai, I think. So I really respect that decision. I, I think that. Um, what was I talking about? Uh, Moon and his I'm ability to, to coach. Something. Uh, so they come back something with the season. Probably after cuddles. Oh, yeah, so and the, the in-game leadership stuff. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so I started to take on that role at Valiant. That's why I became the coach I am now. Is because Moon did more of the head coachy stuff. Okay. So I, w- I would then interact with the players more, right? So I'd do like the VOD reviews. I would talk to them in between maps, so giving the feedback um, on how to play the map and the match. Like you know, go into the match and be like, "Hey, they're going to do this." Uh, remember we talked about doing this other thing when they do this and, and that kind of feedback. Yeah. Um, I would also assist with the halftime speeches. That's how. It, that's when I started giving speeches. Like with, when Moon would do like his big speech, and I would do like a little shittier speech if that makes sense yeah. um, in English because his English obviously we, he, he was translating, um, and I'd translate my speech back into Korean and you know there's this whole thing. Um, but I yeah that's when I started to develop I think like head coach tendencies is is through okay. Moon and just working with him. Um, and filling in for like his, obviously he's not as into the game, like game knowledge side of things. So I learned a lot through that as well. Okay. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that answers a lot of uh, questions as far as like uh, the entire thing. So one of the things people kind of talked about was like the process with Valiant. Okay. And I don't know how much of this is like PR bullshit, to be honest. Um, But they talk about like the process and like it was like Moon coming in and installing this uh, systematic thing. How much of your guys' success was due to the fact that Moon came in and installed the system? Or was it due to the fact that like you guys were able to do your jobs better? Like, or maybe it is just the entire thing. What was that thing that actually made you guys start to perform better? Yeah, I think especially initially, like because we didn't have a whole lot to work with. Cuddles, again, wasn't experienced at the time. I think he's now in Guangzhou. He's he's had a bit more time to learn how to coach and stuff like that. Um, that guy definitely has the potential, you, you know, if he acts on it, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. but there wasn't much of a structure going into the, the season, mm-hmm. like after stage one. Um, so Moon had like a blank slate to work with and yeah, he definitely put in like, I think a traditional sort of more Korean coaching style where players do a lot of the review on their own and then like coaches are more hands off, yeah. um, which is something I fought against the whole time. Like I'm very hands on as a coach. Um, but yeah, he did, he did help a lot. Like I think he's, he deserves a lot of credit. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for being someone that, and this ties back into what I said at the start of the episode, is that I think talent is a huge part of why teams win. Like that's honestly the yeah. most important thing a coach can do is build a good roster. Like it doesn't matter if you have a bad roster and you coach well, that's not going to change the outcome. Um, and yeah, maybe you'll move up a few, a few places. Yeah, you know, but you won't win the season because your coach is good. You win the season because your players are good, and your coach doesn't throw the season. Yeah. Um, so what Moon honestly did. And what Moon's really, really good at, like the one thing I'll, I'll definitely credit Moon for 100% is scouting. Mm-hmm. Um, he he wasn't afraid to like go to management and fight for the things we wanted. 
in terms of the the team. Like we need this player, we need this player, we should trade that player, like that sort of thing. Yeah. I think that's honestly the value he added. Like it's the fact that okay. he was able to go to them and be like, we need to rebuild this team. Like because he came in stage two and went like four and six. It was like his first stage on the team. And it was it was a bad stage. Well worse yeah. than stage one. You know? Like obviously, you know, for him to be able to go to the management and convince them to make these changes to the roster after having like a worse stage than the stage with the coach we just fired, I, I yeah. think was truly impressive and it was necessary. Like and you know, to his credit, he did the things we wanted. Like he did a lot of the changes that we thought were important and we agreed upon as a staff. Um so I think that was largely yeah, definitely I, I think there's some truth to the fact that he, he helped the team get back on track. So what do you think, like, I don't know if you know or don't know or how much of this is just like looking from the outside in and looking at Valiant stage two or season two, stage one, um, if Moon has this ability to put process in and to scout, what the fuck happened? Yeah, so I think a lot of his decisions were guided by my game knowledge and the game knowledge of Stoop, especially working at Valiant. Um, And he's a very good communicator. He's a very good leader type figure. Mm -hmm. Um, Without his decisions being as informed by by me, uh, I think that that's probably a big reason why so many poor decisions went through. Because okay. um, I definitely handled a lot of the game knowledge stuff for the decision-making process that was happening prior to that. Um, so I think that that's probably the reason. Like, And yeah, again, I said that these decisions would be bad before I left. It's not like I'm saying this in hindsight. Yeah, I was like, no, we probably shouldn't sign Kuki. Like, that's probably not the play. You know, like, don't do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was right. He he uh he wanted to move KSF to main DPS. That was his call. Um, mm-hmm. that turned out to be a great decision. So you know, it's yeah. not all bad. I think. Yeah. Uh, did you have an option to stay with Valiant? Like, was there or was it like, oh, okay, no, Moon also doesn't want you here, or did you ever? Was I don't it just, know. I just like, what would have eventuated to have stayed? Okay. But I so for I you, did, there yeah. wasn't there wasn't the option to stay. Whether or not they wanted to offer you something or not, if Moon was going to be there, you were leaving. Yeah. Okay. I think that's fair. So you look at leaving from Valiant and you're looking, I'm imagining you're looking out in the world. How do you end up on Boston? What's the process that gets you into Boston? So I really respected Boston from the outset because of their approach to scouting and yeah. just like the way they did things from the from the outside perspective, at least uh, going into season one. And I respected, you know, I played ranked a lot with Striker, like as a player. Mm-hmm. Um, I played against Gamso a lot of times in the scrims. So I like, when everyone was hating on Boston at the start of season one, I already knew that their roster was good. Like I never doubted Boston. I don't think they had a bad roster at all in season one. I, yeah. I think that the Boston roster was good when they signed it, and it was good at the end of the season. It was just a mm-hmm. good roster. Um, and you know, I think I, I believed in that process, and that's, I thought that they would do well in season two. Um, and so you know, sign with them over another option. Um, just to stop you for a second, did, did you did you know that there was, because obviously this head coach thing is going to come up. When you signed with them, was it like, hey, we're planning on getting a head coach. Uh, we already have a head coach. Uh, like, w- did you have really any... talked about. In hindsight, okay. it's my fault for not asking. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that should be a red flag to anyone, I, I suppose. Um, not having a head coach is just unacceptable, <laughs> you know, in hindsight. Uh it turns out they had a lot of help with the scouting in season one as well, through you know Baroy and through Crusty, uh, obviously. Mm-hmm. Now the Overwatch League winning coach. So, yeah. Um, but you know, from my perspective, that wasn't the case going into it, which I think was probably wrong. Um, but you know, yeah, yeah, I, I guess that that's why I joined Boston, right? I just felt like they they had a lot of they they appeared like they had their shit together from the outside. Yeah, and I felt like I could add a lot of game knowledge and leadership. Well, I think- 
everyone talked about their like i was super actually impressed with boston from what it sounded like on the outside they also managed to keep like they were one of those teams that was able to keep their costs relatively like reasonable and still do i would say fairly well and i thought that like if if you could consistently do that um I think that that probably would be kind of the like on the outside like my business Blake is thinking that's probably the way to go about this as much as I don't like some of the other stuff that I've heard that I'm probably going to ask you about um sure. but like at least from the outside in that does it, like the process seems like they had some sort of process obviously this season did not work out nearly as well um for probably a multitude of reasons that we'll get into um did you have any other offers from any other teams like were, were you like someone who was like you had choices on the table or was it like this was the first team that reached out and so i decided to go with it because i thought this team was good anyways i had choices yeah i don't know specifics i'm talking to the yeah. teams again this year um but yeah definitely had choices um just to talk about the the process side of things and the cost side of things i, I think that yeah you should absolutely credit boston for being a financially efficient team like they are one of the teams i talked about at the start of the episode where they don't invest too much into the Overwatch League or as much as maybe yeah. they should if they want to win. But they're definitely one of the teams that gets a better trade-off on average. I mean, if we look at Season 1 plus Season 2, Season 2 was obviously a disaster. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I absolutely, I've always said that. I've always said, even internally, I've said that, like, yeah, I respect the fact that Boston is a financially viable team and isn't VC-funded at all. Like, I think that's totally worth worthy of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, obviously they're a team that's not going to win the Overwatch League either, you, you know? Like, yeah. Because they're not spending six digits on their players, right? I mean, that's just... And they're not, there's many teams like that in the league, right? Um, yeah. I also want to say, to Boston's credit, not to just shill them all the time, I, I, I think, with, with all credit, I think that the addition of eight teams to the league with the expansion team window kind of fucked Boston in many ways. Yeah. Like, their whole thing was finding talent that no one else had found. And then eight teams were forced to do that and also had a signing window uh, exemption where they could sign people before other teams. So yeah. all the talent that Boston and, and even me, like all the talent that I knew about, like again, I talked about the Atlanta phone call, um, all that talent was taken. So mm-hmm. we really had to like find players from nowhere, like literally nowhere. Like a few of those players worked out, you know, thank God. But yeah, I think Boston absolutely got screwed by that. And I've now found out like recently that Many of the endemic teams, the teams that were already in the league in the first season, just completely ignored the the window of a signing opportunity, um, and made deals with players like under the table. Uh, and Boston didn't. Like Boston's Boston's totally a team that abides by the rules at all times and and follows every legal process. Um, and it kind of felt like they kept getting fucked by that. Like the fact that they didn't abuse the signing window like other teams did. The yeah. fact that they don't try and sneak players in on visas when they shouldn't. Like Boston's a team that follows the rules, you know and that hasn't helped them at all. And I think that's kind of sad. Yeah, that is a really shitty thing, actually. That I, I mean, I, I knew that the expansion teams, like, when they got that cut, I could very well see eight teams being able to just, because they have to scout from, like, nothingness being... Like, even if they didn't have great scouts, because they have to scout from nothingness, the chances of them not hitting some gems here or there that you guys might have picked up that other people wouldn't have, is just, because there's eight of them, it's very unlikely that that probably would have yeah, ended up Even during happening. the trials, like, these players are disappearing from the trials because yeah. they're being signed to expansion teams, so they're being made these offers behind the scenes that they shouldn't be able to get. Yeah. Um, and there's just no accountability for that stuff, so... And the player's never going to report a team that does it, that, like, whispers them outside of the, you know, appropriate time. 
So. Yeah, hundred percent. So um, you're getting on Boston. Um, you you don't ask about the head coach, which I I think hindsight twenty twenty, right? Like we like looking back now, we're all like, oh, sure it came put- up, but like it was always vague. It was always like, yeah, we'll yeah. look for one. You'll find one. And it's like okay, okay. So you get into Boston. Um, they hire you on. Um, you you mentioned that you had uh, you had some sense in helping to uh, build the roster for season two, right? Um, obviously, you can't probably divulge a lot of secrets because that would be so. A lot like, of the roster was built before I joined, maybe okay. half, um, because it included players from last season plus players that they were moving up from academy, which I had no no real yeah. say in. Um, so that was about half the roster built when I got there. I helped out with the scouting. Um, to be honest, the only player where I feel like I made a difference in signing was probably Blase. Uh, I don't think I helped sign any other player in hindsight. I don't think me being there changed the outcome of any of the signings we did. Okay. Uh, except for the ones later in the season, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. Just in terms of like the initial signing window. Um, but yeah, Blaze is someone that I scouted. Not scouted, but like the stats changed my opinion of him, actually. Okay. And like, I think you'd agree, he's someone that worked out really well for the team. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the better players on Boston, I would argue. Yeah. Um, and stats stats were the reason that I looked through the trials when he wasn't going to make it and was like, wait a minute, did we miss something here? Like, this is a good player. Um, so yeah. And then I got to coach Blase for the whole season, which was nice. Yeah. Um, great player, good to work with. So, yeah, I, I didn't really have a lot of control over the roster initially, but I tried to influence things for the better, I think. That's not Boston's mm-hmm. fault. I just joined late. Like, I wasn't excluded from that yeah. process. Yeah. I yeah. Didn't join in time to change a lot of the outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. So, kind of looking at that, then you get your guys' roster set for season two and you're going in. What's the dynamic like as soon as there isn't a head coach? Because I imagine from the outside that that would be like having a head coach may not always be the best thing, but what it does do 100% is it speeds things up, right? Like you have kind of like a dictator, like that's like the th- if you have a really good dictator, it's actually really good for a country because um, they can, they're just very efficient. There's no uh, yep. democracy needed. However, if you have a really bad dictator, um, it is awful. Um, and a lot of times that's what it ends up being. But I imagine that uh, being efficient and fast, at least as far as a team that's trying to compete, is something that's important. So what was the dynamic like in Boston and how did you work through it? Because in a, in a thing said that you basically said the head coach, you kind of wrote a tweet that said you weren't the head coach. So some clarification might be a little bit nice on that. Yeah, that was, I think, in poor form to say. Uh, yeah, I don't. I'm not a leader on the team in the decision-making sense, absolutely not. Like, mm-hmm. absolutely no control over decisions being made. I voted like everyone else. Um, that said, I was like a cultural leader in some ways. I, I did mm-hmm. speeches. I did VOD review, so coaching the players on terms of how to play the game. Um, I did feedback for like a few of the players, like Blase, Fusions, yeah. uh, AimGod, Note. Um, so, yeah, for sure. Like, I, I was a leader... I think in the eyes of the players, especially, right? I'm, I'm, I'm that kind of person. I'm yeah. opinionated. I give good speeches. Um, I work really hard. So I'm just someone that naturally, I think, attracts that sort of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. Like, absolutely. I think the decision making process and just the team in general was really sluggish. And I think, yeah, like that's because we had to discuss, we had to vote on everything. Uh, conversations weren't really influenced beforehand. That we always came to every conversation completely blank and said. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? There wasn't someone that came in and said, this is what I want. What does everyone else think about this thing? Like, there was no yep. direction. Everything was kind of aimless. Um, the closest thing we had to a head coach was Huck, honestly, for <laughs> most of the season. Like, And he, he was more of a mediator, I, I think, in many ways. He definitely stepped back from the, the team this season in terms of the coaching side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but the biggest issue I had with the, the decision-making process, and maybe this is like a good warning to people who think not having a head coach is okay or 
they're yeah. thinking about not having a head coach for some period of time, as some teams might this this season, judging by the uh, the Reddit you know, F5 season. Yeah. Um, the big issue is that you end up being really indecisive, yeah. and you end up making poor decisions because, firstly, not everyone's equivalent. Like, not everyone has the same level of expertise in any given area. Some people are better at coaching players. Some people are better at making yeah. long-term decisions, financial decisions, whatever it might be. Um, so by aver- averaging everyone's opinions through democracy, you sort of fuck yourself immediately, like right off the bat. Um, I think Krusty complained about this at Boston as well. Like I remember him saying in an interview from the previous season where he was like, Boston's a democracy and I don't want a democracy. Yeah. And I kind of didn't want it either, but I was just optimistic that something would, would happen there. I think democracy is just... Like, I don't think it's efficient. Like, I, I, we could I, convince I, I, yeah. Moon to do something, but <laughs> it would never vote. Like... What I've always said yeah. about that is kind of, and this is actually, I used to do this for a drug court when I used to work for a drug court, is even like uh, working with like individuals who you're trying to help get like better over time. There, it isn't a democracy. What you have is you have one person who gets to make all the decisions. Everyone makes suggestions or uh, gives yeah. directions that they would like to think. That person decides and he has to decide, he has to understand each person's value and what they bring to the table and understand that their point of view is probably biased towards whatever experience or expertise that they have and then make a decision of it. And But that is the fastest way to start to do things um, and still get some input from other people and utilize other people to make hopefully what is the best decisions on the team that's also why the fault still falls on the head coach it's because they still ultimately at the end get to make that decision they make the decision they get paid the money they take responsibility like that's the the equation right they they get the most money so they're the full guy and they're also the guy making the calls Uh, and you trust in that and like we trusted in moon to do that you know for better or for (laughs) worse like we, we did that and he did it um, not having that at Boston, I, I think this absolves everyone of responsibility. Yeah. Which is why I was sort of frustrated with like the the Huck AMA where it was like, you know, whatever, like, you know, this guy was sort of the leader. It's just like you can't turn around in hindsight and say that, right? That's wrong. Like if I was the leader and I was responsible for making decisions, I would take that responsibility one hundred percent. As anyone should. But I'm not gonna take responsibility for things I didn't have any control over. Um not to say I had the perfect season in terms of my votes, like yeah. where my votes went. But I had a pretty good season. I think I voted above the average. Um, I'm someone with a history of doing that, like having consistently good opinions about what to do. Mm-hmm. I pride myself on that, so it's something I have to protect in terms of reputation. Yeah. Um, so that's yeah, that AMA definitely frustrated me. But I'm sure he wasn't like trying to be malicious. He just yeah. in the moment didn't know how to answer a question. Like he's like, "What the fuck? What do I say?" You know, like, um, yeah, I think democracy is poison. I think it's absolutely poisonous in Overwatch League teams. It's like a complete mistake. Yeah, and I. That's not a mistake. I, Boston will do again. So, I mean, they've already they've already picked a head coach um, for next year. Uh, Mineral is going to be the head coach. Um, mm-hmm. I, I kind of have to ask him the outside. In. Like Mineral's record, uh, if we're going to use that, and maybe part of that could have been a systematic thing on Florida Mayhem, um, which is another team that looks like from the outside looking in, they it's just terrifying. Um, from like what the fuck is going on? Uh, but Mineral yep. made a lot of the decisions going for. Uh, uh, season one and then into season two before he left or got replaced or how however the phrasing nice phrasing is um do you think that he's someone who's going to do good on boston with the, the the systems that you know that boston has they're not going to win right like, i mean, I mean that's just not going to happen i like, think yeah, we've already decided win. they're not willing to pay money therefore they can't win so. It's just like, for boston it's a question of can they get you know top 10 or top 12 or yeah. whatever their goal is that's reasonable based on the budget they're willing to spend mm-hmm. um that's not to say boston is in some like league of being a super cheap team or something they're yeah. definitely one of the cheaper teams but that's they're, they're surrounded by other teams to be fair that yeah. people don't even realize are cheap um will he do well 
mean, all signs point to no, right? Like, I think if you're being objective, um, Team Sweden, I mean, Team Sweden lost to Team Australia 4-0. You know, like, that's that's the kind of team we're talking about here. It's not like Florida Mayhem was his only opportunity. Yeah. Um, so if you're being objective and looking at history, you would say no. But he's had a lot of time, you, you know? I think yeah. time helps a lot. Like, I mean, just, I, I don't want to say, like, if I was a betting man, I would say that he's going to fail. I, you know, yeah. if, of course, of course I'd say that based on the facts. But if I look at the the history of this sort of thing happening, it's not unheard of for a coach to do a poor job and then do a really good job. Like, yeah. to bring it back to Atlanta, they ended up hiring Sefi, which I yeah. thought at the time was laughable. Like, well, you hired this guy who made shock in season one, then they were just a horrible team. And, mm-hmm. had, you know, they had a lot of money back then and they were still a horrible team and the signings were really bad. And, like, that's, you know, why would you hire that guy again? And Atlanta are quite a good team now. Right, yeah. so I, I definitely think it's possible for people to be better or worse than they were in the previous season by a huge mm-hmm. degree, um, and he deserves the same kind of respect, right? Like he deserves the yeah. opportunity, but yeah, nothing's proven yet, right? I mean, you just have to go into it open-minded and see how he does. And at the end of the day, you know, Mineral is Huck's decision, so you know that's fine. Like that's how it is. I mean, Huck's, Huck is Huck believes in Mineral, um, and we'll see if he's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's uh, all that we can kind of like hope for. Um, obviously, you're looking for teams. Um, we actually yep. hit uh, towards the end of my questions. I hope that you have stuff out there. You mentioned earlier that you you have people that you're currently talking to. I'm not going to make try to get you to divulge any of that. I think people should hire you because you seem very intelligent, but that's just, that's just me. Um, my mother says I, that about me as well. Oh, okay. Well, I... I, I feel like I pride myself on being able to know people fairly well out of a short period of time with my experience working with some terrible fucking people. So uh, <laughs> take that for what it, that's one of the things I pride myself on. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show, though. Uh, it's been wonderful to have you. We've gotten to learn a lot about you and you personally. Um, this is the, the point. I have one last question um, that I will uh, let you answer, and it's hard or easy depending on who you are. Um, so having had the experience being on this show um, and getting through through this entire thing. Hopefully it was fun for you. If you could see anyone to be on the show, the only criteria is they have to be involved in esports and they have to speak English. Um, who would you like to see on the show like this? And if you pick someone who I've had, I'll let you know. I think if I had to pick someone, it would be people that deserve exposure okay. for either the good work that they do or like the job that they should have. Yeah. Um, so I'd probably pick two. Yeah, it's fine. I would pick Stoop from Valiant. So... <laughs> You know, working alongside me at Valiant the whole time, and yep. you know half of the work there that made that team great was was me and him. You know, mm-hmm. and I think I've, I I've spoken on podcasts and I tweet more than he does, um, so I've gotten more credit for that. I think, but Stoop deserves just as much credit, and Stoop still works there now, and no one thinks yep. about Stoop. So, hundred percent, I want to credit Stoop. Um, and Face again, just to bring it back to Face, I think Face is an excellent coach. I think he should be hired immediately. Uh, his record's pretty spotless in terms of losses. The teams he coaches seem to win. So I think he deserves exposure as well. Okay. I just want to thank you so much. If you have any shout-outs, you're more than welcome to get them here. I don't normally give them, but if you want them, you're more than welcome to have them. Fuck, if you're an Overwatch League team, hit me up. Yeah? Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Everyone out there, this has been Deep Dives into the Minds of Esports. Until next time, I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you.